Your attention is precious. Pulled in a million directions for a million different reasons. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina works hard to make sure your health insurance isn't one of the many things distracting you from what's important. By making healthcare easier to navigate, we help keep your focus on the moments that matter most. Like dinner with loved ones. Letting you focus on you. That's the benefit of Blue. Learn more at BenefitOfBlueSC.com. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah Woo-hoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to bring to you my next guest to the podcast. He spent 24 years with law enforcement overall. He was a retired captain with the Texas Department of Public Safety, Intelligence, and Counterterrorism Division. He managed the daily operations of the Texas Rangers, Border Security Operations Center, as well as a human intelligence or human in several nations. He served as the critical incident commander during the Fort Hood shooting, the IRS Echelon building attack, University of Texas active shooter incident, and many other crisis scenarios. You cannot hit a Juarez whorehouse without him knowing about it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Captain Jason Jones. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, the the current political climate as it relates to what you've spent, you know, the bulk of your adult life doing. Uh, I don't think there's really a better time to have a guy like you on this podcast, um, given the listeners the uh, information that they like to hear, as well as how bad our country needs to be aware of all of the types of things and, and uh, just the shit in general that goes on in our southern border, especially here in Texas. But, you know, New Mexico, Arizona, California are, are no less problematic but uh with texas being as big of a state as it is it's it's also one that you you, for whatever reason don't seem to hear as much about uh, as you do say you know the tijuana and and arizona uh, arizona regions specifically but uh, i can't thank you enough for making the trip to come up here lots of good information and and stories you have and and information that people need to be aware of Uh, so thank you for for coming up yeah thanks for having me it's good to be with you yeah Uh, how was the trip up here that was good. You stopped Left early this morning. Yeah, no, I, I don't doubt it. it's a long, long way. But uh, before we uh, dig into the lightning round and get in the meat and potatoes, I want to take a, a quick moment to give a shout out and thank you to our sponsor of the Mic Drop Podcast, Origin Labs, uh, which makes all of Jocko's stuff. They make their own line of supplements. They make uh, geese, and they've got some other stuff coming down the pike that uh, we'll be telling you about here shortly. But a uh, big shout out to them as being uh, uh, willing to sponsor this podcast. So thank you, gentlemen, Origin Labs. All right. So getting right into it, how difficult was it keeping Walker, Texas Ranger between the lines? 
you know, I had to bust your balls. <laughs> hey, man, you got you got to do it. I get it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Are you a fan of that show at all? Oh, of Have course, watched, of course. You, yeah. you know, who, who can't be a Chuck Norris fan? Yeah. I mean, is that the, that's a violation of a Texas yeah. law at some point? I know. It. Is, is there anything out of that show that's even remotely realistic? To, not, much. Not, not much. No, pretty... about the badge. I think is about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so Chuck, uh, Chuck's going a little overboard. Yeah, just a little, but. Yeah, no, I don't doubt it. Good no. mascot, though, right? Yeah, no, for sure. It, uh, it gives some exposure to the unit, that's for sure. Maybe, maybe some unwarranted yeah. exposure. But uh, what was your most embarrassing moment during a leadership role while you were there? Oh, man. Which one to pick from? Were there a lot? Always, you know. Can't be in a leadership position and not screw up. I yeah. mean, that's just, you, you got to be upfront and honest about it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably calling someone by the wrong name when you got a lot of people or yeah. something along those lines. Anybody like uh, while cameras are rolling or, uh, you know, in a in a big meeting where there's high level people. There. Oh, yeah. Screwing up, saying something <laughs> you shouldn't have. Who knows how yeah. many times, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Uh, if you could trade places with anyone dead or alive for a day, who would it be? Dead or alive for a day. Man, you know, hell, now you say Chuck Norris, I think that's a pretty good one. <laughs> yeah, I think he everywhere he goes, there's got to be people that want a shot at the fucking title with that guy, though. You know, yeah, like everybody wants to say, I beat Chuck Norris's ass. Plus, I mean, Christ, he's in the upwards of 80 at this point, I think, right? And, hey, have you seen that thing going around online about him, you know, about how badass he is? You oh, know? yeah. I mean, it's Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good, good stuff. Fucking clear. Yeah. It's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Classic. Uh, what, what is uh, your favorite or, in your opinion, the best home defense weapon? Uh, weapon wise, you know, I've always been a SIG guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. P two two six. I I carried that most of my career, and uh, also carried a two twenty. So I, I, you know, for personal on carry, yeah, good to go. But in a home, shotgun, you can't yeah. beat it up close. Yeah, no, shotguns uh, tough to beat. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Do you have a, a favorite um, brand or manufacturer of shotgun? No, nah, not, not really. really. You know. It's hard, it's hard to, are good. There's yeah, nothing Rem- wrong with them. You can't go wrong with them. They're always going to function. You know? Yeah. Remington and Mossberg's tough to beat. But they are. Benelli's are great. Yeah. Right? Benelli's they're a little, fan, they're a little uh, Gucci for my taste. I think. That's the only thing, right? Yeah. And they, they foul up a little bit, yeah. don't always run. Yeah. 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 Uh, but they you, look sexy. No, they sure as hell do. <laughs> and they and they got a good price tag to be. Yeah. What, uh, what is your favorite hobby or pastime? I like welding. Really? Yeah, I do, yeah, man. Like, it's like, something about sticking metal together. It's just a guy thing. I don't, yeah, you know, I don't know how to weld where the fuck. What uh, is it? Um, do you do like structural shit, like where you're building stuff, or is it more like uh, fancy, uh, you know, trying to look good type of stuff? Yeah, no, it's it's just making silly shit around the house, yeah. and I don't take classes. You know, I look online on uh, yeah. on YouTube, learning how to do stuff. <laughs> I bought me a little Miller, and then I yeah. went out and bought me a Miller plasma cutter. And oh, I know shit. it sounds silly, man, but I, there's something about it that just is a yeah. good way of decompressing. You ever make, like, uh, I know here in Texas, uh, a popular item is taking, like, uh, the caps from... Pro, big propane tanks and turning them into fire pits and shit. Yeah, you know, do, make, I, so, I hadn't so, done that yeah, yet, but I made little gates out. and yeah. you know all kinds of stuff around yeah. the house and things. Shit, that's cool. Yeah. Um, uh, this is the question I that stays consistent. I ask everybody, what uh, what is your morning routine? Coffee, yeah, lots what, of it. You get up? around six a.m. I get up and I start scraping. 
uh, scraped the internet for what the animals in uh, Mexico were doing no shit. the night before, because uh, a lot happens during the nighttime. So yeah. I try to see what the daily routine is going to be, because that scrape kind of tells me what my day is going to be like after that, yeah. and what I'm going to post and get out there to everybody, and then what the daily tripwires are. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I post is called tripwires and triggers, and it's basically you know, monitoring the daily tripwires and then setting the triggers. It's kind of an intel thing, right? Yeah. And um, I start my day out with that. And then from there, that kind of sets the pace for how things are going to go. So you have coffee. Do you uh, eat anything or work out or anything? Or is it mostly no, coffee and go right to... It's coffee pretty much most of the day now. Oh, shit. Yeah, it's yeah. weird. And, you know, <laughs> I, did, I, I was a late starter on coffee. Oh, same here. That's funny. Why? I, well, and interestingly, I I also, I mean, I drink coffee pretty much, and that's about all I consume. Now, granted, I have collagen powder and fucking MCT oil and all sorts of shit in it, but uh, but I'll, I'll drink a, a pot of that in the morning uh, or the first half of the day, and I, I won't eat till the second half of the day similarly. And I didn't start drinking coffee until well into my 30s either. I never yeah. never drank it before then, but is that kind of the same shit? Yeah, late yeah. 20s. Yeah. Uh, too many too many hours working and then extra jobs trying to make ends meet and yeah. force me to go that route, and now I'm hooked. So you, so that's interesting, I guess, hearing you say that. I mean, even as a, uh, you spent, was it six years uh, with the sheriff's department and then yeah. uh, 18 with DPS, right? Yeah. So even as a DPS uh, employee, um, or for that matter, badge holder. I mean, you were, you were still having to do second and third jobs to. Oh yeah, you know, in, in the old days, the uh, Texas Department of Public Safety, we didn't make any money as state troopers. I mean, oh, we shit. we were dying on the vine, and it wasn't until I would say probably around we got a pretty good, significant pay raise from the state around '04, and then in '09, Director Steve McCraw came in, and everything changed. So you know, a lot of the young troops that are out there now, yeah. you know, they've they got don't know what it was they like. have no idea how yeah. it was in the old days. Yeah, know? God, that's uh, that's that's interesting to hear because you know I think most people, uh, you know, assume that especially you know for those of you that that aren't familiar with Texas, the Department of Public Safety is the state troopers essentially. There's a lot of other entities within the organization but um, you know that's from my opinion your average citizen that's kind of what they're most known for but I think most people assume they're that they've always been a little better taken care of than that that's uh, that's interesting to, to find out for me at least in terms of working out do you do you do any types of workouts or have a fitness routine or is it uh, mostly just geared towards what you do for a living now yeah it's mostly geared towards that yeah. um, once I retired I kind of Put all that retired the me. whole thing yeah you know uh to yeah. stay in dps they they mandated a pt program so once i got out man it was almost like a decompress a little bit from it all yeah. you know but i do miss the, i don't miss the running yeah but i do miss the pt you know the, the working out with weights and things yeah but, you know was there the last uh, three years since stepping out and uh, i've yeah. pretty much stepped back and then i've invested full-time into this business and that's a 12 and 14 hour day you know yeah. keeping up with what's going on in mexico now so. yeah no, i don't doubt it um was the uh was that routine within the organization pretty stringent yeah it was yeah. And, and you know what it's continuing to evolve it always yeah. is changing you know i guess around 09 010 they, they really got more aggressive on being able to make a mile and a half run and yeah. certain push-ups and then sit-ups and then they evolved into this this damn wind machine and i gotta tell you that thing will like take, a rower a yeah rower. it's a rower yeah, yeah. that's it. it it'll take it out of you pretty oh, yeah. good and then you've got to qualify you know uh, to a certain degree and if you don't make it 
you know, yeah. you go on probation and they start hammering you. So, yeah. you know, with that pay came a lot more with that as well, mandates, yeah. which, you know, that's how that works. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's good. The one thing I will say, I mean, and this isn't even specific just to, to Texas, but I don't know that I've ever seen a state trooper in any fucking state that didn't look like they were in good shape, you know, whereas I can sure as fuck say that about plenty of, I mean, I've seen plenty of police officers. I'm just like, who the fuck are you chasing down? You know, um, I think it's, it's an imperative component of the job to be in, in at least uh, formidable shape. You know, Uh, I don't think everybody needs to be a, a CrossFit games competitor level athlete, but um, you know, the nature of the job, you know, if you have to go hands on with people or, or chase people or, or whatever, like you can't be a, a tubby bitch, like a, like you, you do see some, uh, some departments have, have no real right and left flank as it relates to, to physical fitness, or if they do, they sure as hell don't enforce yeah. it. But, uh, I'll tell you to get through the Academy. It's a 27 week Academy. No shit. Yeah. I lost 23 pounds in that God Academy, damn. man. Fucking six months long. Uh, uh, let me tell you, uh, just shy of seven. Sure. And I mean, you live there, yeah. so you're living it every day. You're up. I mean, it was by far one of the most uh, physical and mental things I'd ever been through. But I will tell you, when I got out, they said, "Where would you like to go?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm from Austin. I sure would like to stay." And they said, "Okay, El Paso, Texas, it is." <laughs> Holy shit! You know, who did I piss off, right? Yeah. <laughs> and when you're out there on the side of the road and it's the middle of the night. Yeah. And your closest backup is about 40 to 50 miles away. Yeah. And that big truck driver says, you know what, Troop, I don't think we're going to jail today. Yeah. Well, that training, <laughs> yeah. you learn real quick, real fast, it pays off. Yeah. And back in that those days, you know, radios didn't reach out there when I got out there. It was a different world. Yeah. So that training, no doubt, as stringent, as difficult, as challenging as it was. Lifesaver. It, it really is, you know, yeah. and when you're fighting in the bar ditch all alone, yeah, it remind you realize how far you can go. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if you went through that when you were, what, 24 or so, yeah. 25, were you one of the older uh, cadets there? Or is that a ca- that was about the age group at that yeah. point, but they had also um, just opened it up to a lot of, uh, I don't remember what, what, what the age group was, but older guys were coming in for the first time yeah. in my academy, and I remember that. And uh, we were calling them grandpa and thing. You know, when I say older, I'm talking like, what, yeah. 35, you know, yeah. 40. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, as a guy in his 40s, I, I mean, I, I would, uh, I mean, I, I don't know that I would be real keen on going through something like that at my age, you know, I mean, mostly because of my attitude. I think I'd have a real hard time being talked to that way, especially if it was, uh, yeah. you know, guys younger than you with less life experience telling you, you know, yeah. Shut the fuck up and push them out and whatever. I I wouldn't do well in that environment at this age. But I don't think any of us would at this yeah, age. You know yeah. what I mean? But I mean, I remember going through buds. <laughs> I mean, we had a guy that was thirty five going, really? going through buds. Yeah, I mean, he was a freak. He was a, a former force recon guy, and and you know, I mean, he was as, as in good of shape and in better shape than most yeah. uh, of, of guys in the class. I mean, he was a he was a phenomenal athlete. But did he make it? He did. Yeah. I ended up going to to the East Coast, and uh, I saw him years later. Um, you know, I mean, he was at this point; he was in his forties, but uh, and still looked, you know, about half his fucking age. But yeah. you know, that's certainly an anomaly. That's not a, a common thing. I mean, most guys are early twenties, mid twenties. But yeah. Yeah. Um, at any rate, all right. So you mentioned you're from from Austin. Uh, so you grew up in Austin. Is that if you could tell us about growing up there, just kind of the childhood, what it was like then, and, uh, and what it was like growing up. 
Yeah, originally from Houston, uh, my father, my stepfather was an HPD officer. Mm. And so you can kind of see where this thing all came about. Yeah. And uh, my brother's a judge down there as well, kind of a family of law enforcement officers. And uh, that's how it kind of kicked off. After he retired from HPD, he moved up to the Hill Country. And uh, we went to high school up there. And that was it. And I knew kind of what I was going to be at around age seven. I mean, there was no doubt. I mean, I, I can remember him coming home with that 1911 Commander yeah. and uh, uh, having that thing tucked in. No badge visible because, you know, this is the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And saying, you know, Dad, how was today? And he said, uh, it was a slow day. Only had about 30 people we arrested today. You know? and, and, <laughs> wow, you know, just amazed by that. Yeah. So I knew at a very young age what I was going to do. There's yeah. no doubt. Was that a big shift moving from Houston to Austin? No, it's pretty young now. It's about yeah. 13 or 14, so it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Nah, you know, and looking back now, it's kind of funny. I've moved nine times across Texas for the state police. Yeah. So I did a lot of border time in other places. And it's funny how you come full circle because now I'm trying to get back, you know. So. Yeah. No, I know it. Well, the Hill Country is nice. I, I don't particularly care for the politics in Austin, but uh, did you have uh, siblings growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But were they, uh, did the siblings kind of, fall in the in the line and take similar uh similar paths or yeah some did and then you know some they, they had kind of had it just my my other brother he uh uh he went down the road of uh, being a probation officer first mm. and then became a judge and is now one of the longest sitting judges in hayes county oh no shit yeah so wow. uh it's, real it's, proud of him yeah it sounds like you had a big family yeah, we yeah. do. Uh, how many how many siblings did you have? Uh, eight on one side through Holy my stepfather, <laughs> and then from my my real father's side, uh, another four boys over there. So yeah, it's like a family picnic every yeah, day. Yeah, right? let me tell you, man, we're pretty damn large. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's uh, <laughs> that'd be a neat way to grow up for sure. Um, we I had three siblings, but uh, I can't imagine having eleven. Yeah. Um, did you play any sports growing up? Yeah, yeah, I played football. I lettered in uh, high school. And uh, and for you're from Texas and you're a boy, you gotta you gotta, you gotta play do football, it. Right? I mean, that's just what we do here, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like Iowa and wrestling. Uh, were there any any traumatic events growing up that uh, that shaped your desire to to do what you do, or was it uh, what, what was kind of the catalyst that that got you uh, interested at such a young age to do that? Was it just the the father inspiration? Yeah, my stepfather inspiration was really a big a big piece of that. And then you know, I always grew up shooting guns and just you know loving the outdoors. You know, yeah. it was, that was always our family thing to do. You yeah. know, and uh, uh, avid gun hunter since I was a little kid, and yeah. uh, you know, always around guns and shooting, and so. It's just one of those things that just, you know, it was a natural fit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, it, uh, it seems like a lot of, I would say most, uh, you know, interviews that I do where people are in, in law enforcement or military, you know, have, have a similar upbringing, which uh, I guess shouldn't come as a huge surprise uh, in that it lends itself to, to that line of work. But, you know, there are certainly cases where, where that isn't, uh, in fact, what happened, but, uh, but most times it is. Did you find... Uh, that that uh, was a significant uh, help and, and uh, benefit in terms of, of going in there, uh, in terms of weapons handling and mentality and things like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, from day one, I mean, it, it, it helped from the first academy I went through with the sheriff's office um, to the second one as well, through yeah. DPS. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and later, too, you know, seeing horrific scenes and different things that you go through, 
I had some pretty good mentors with mm-hmm. my stepfather who had been through down that road and yeah. being able to bounce things off of him and uh, great man, great, great guy. Did he, uh, did he share a lot? Like were there days where, where he would come home and, and give you, you know, pretty in-depth um, stories about what, what happened and, and things like that? Or was he more? It was later, later in life, not, not when we were young, mm-hmm. you know, not when it was going on, not when it was really happening. You know, Houston back in the day was pretty wild. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, shit, it still oh, is. Oh yeah, and uh, so he retired in '78 from uh, burglary and robbery division, and you know he's got some great or had some great stories. I guess I should say uh, he passed in '09, but uh, yeah, I mean, just a great inspiration, and and that's kind of the background for what got me going in that direction. Yeah, mm-hmm. and what did uh, what did that transformation process look like? I mean, did you graduate high school? go straight straight into to that or can you can you walk us through that that timeline basically from when you graduated on man i knew exactly what i wanted to do and um i was probably out of high school maybe a month or two and there was a position open for a dispatcher at the sheriff's office and i put in for and i got a call about i don't know six weeks later and they said hey how would you like to come in and test for a correction officer's position i'm like let's roll so I went in there, got accepted, and started in the very back, what we used to call the Dungeon Masters. Yeah. Uh, I was 19 <laughs> years old, right out of high school, yeah. and started and worked my way up. And within a year, I was in the academy yeah. and working my way out, trying to get on the streets. How was, how was being a corrections officer? I mean, is that, uh, I mean, because is that, with it being kind of an entry level gig i mean are you uh, are you shit on by by comparison oh, yeah of course absolutely yeah. you got to start at the bottom yeah. but i will tell you you know into the to the future law enforcement officers out there who are thinking about you know what path should we take you know should i go the you know uh, go get a college degree do i want to just go right in right now that is a great place to start and the reason i say that is because when you're around people who are in that environment, around criminals who have committed crimes, you learn to pick up on mannerisms. You learn to spot the tattoos, jailhouse mm-hmm. tattoos. And those things help you throughout your career. Yeah. And, you know, when they fight, you learn how to take people down. I mean, and you're starting at a young age. So for me, I always said that some of that stuff helped me survive throughout my career mm-hmm. as I traveled around because you're you're in those environments and you're talking to those people, and you're seeing the talk, the way that that's why I still say, Hey man, you've probably heard me. Yeah. Stay hey, that's from the all that started there mm-hmm. and then carried on through my career working undercover in narcotics. You know, I had a young face, especially back then. Yeah. And after I came out, man, I, that was my role. That was where I wanted to go. And yeah. that's what I did. But it started right there. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there's, I, I always draw parallels between what I do in, in terms of dealing with dogs and, and training people to, to be able to read dogs and, and the parallels that exist between especially cops and criminals and, and dog trainers and dogs. Not to say that dogs are criminals, but fuck, they act like it half the time. Uh, and that they're always they're always trying to you know figure out a way around what you want them to do you know they're they're relatively selfish creatures uh, contrary to popular belief and there's so much to dog training that that relies on your ability to read mannerisms and um, you know use nonverbal communication and body language to to communicate with these animals and it, it seems like there's a lot of that same element to 
being, you know, any type of law enforcement officer, whether it's, you yes. know, as a corrections officer or even all the way up, you know, even as a fucking judge for that matter, seeing how, how somebody talks and how they conduct themselves and things like that. Yeah. Um, did you find that, that that was something that, that remained pretty prevalent throughout your entire career? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. The body language, like you're saying, you know, you learn when someone's telling you some bullshit real yeah. early, real on yeah. and uh, uh, what, helped tremendously. Yeah. You know? what, what uh, is there? I guess a couple of examples you could share where um, somebody was doing this and you knew that that it meant that. Oh yeah, um, one of the things that they used to do is they would make things, and they, I, I'll tell you, the the ability, man. And I hadn't thought about this stuff in so long. This is this is a great conversation. They they would make things, and so they would make picture frames out of. Uh, uh, just regular sandwich bags, you know, like the little uh, Dorito bags and things, crosses and all these things. So what they would try to do with the corrections officers is they would try to give those things to you. Well, once you accept something, right, once you accept that, now they got you on the hook. Yeah. And they're always were trying to do that back then, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the reason I'm bringing that up is because the body language of what you were just talking about, when they're doing something they know that at the end of the day they're going to get something more for, it comes across mm -hmm. and picking up on those little things at a young age yeah. helped me tremendously out on the side of the road all along yeah. to be able to read a person's body language to say because you know we, we give off so many nonverbal cues yeah. and it's just like anybody out there that does anything whether you're in sales or you know in special operations you know when somebody walks up and they're acting like they're gonna buy something whether they're really a buyer mm -hmm. or whether they're not because you do it every day right yeah. Law enforcement's no different. You're yeah. really picking up on those personal cues of how a person's coming across and what they're not saying mm -hmm. versus what they are saying. Yeah. Plus, you know, over the years, you, you go through so much training in that, too. Yeah. That it helps. But I always say, and so to anyone out there that's thinking about it, don't hesitate for a second to go start your career in a jail. Because once you get a couple of years under you, well, now you've got some experience, and that will help you throughout your career. Yeah. Help keep you safe. Yeah. Well, the uh, You know, it's interesting here in the... You know, you, you kind of depict some of the scenarios on the side of the road and, and just some of the experiences that you had. And that, you know, I, th I think most people, because they they can they can be oblivious to all of those things because their life doesn't depend on it. Most people are, yeah. you know, but whether it's high level dog training, because when you're dealing with dangerous dogs, you know, and, and here at the Warrior Dog Foundation right now, we've got 21 retired dogs. And, and here's the the reality is that all 21 of those dogs are here for a reason yeah. and it's not because they're easy to fucking deal with. You know, they're all at, at points where they were going to be put to sleep by their unit because they couldn't, they were at a point where they either couldn't or weren't willing to deal with, with the training issues that they had or injuries or both or whatever. And so, uh, you know, when we get them, there's, there's a lot to that of, of really reading that dog because you have to. And, and, it, it's it's fascinating to me how how few people unless they're in those lines of work where where you have to because your life or safety may depend on being able to pick up those subtle clues actually do that um but you know it, and i didn't know that i didn't know that these government agencies like that were just throwing these dogs to the side like that I, yeah we, well logan and i were talking about yeah. it outside beforehand I, I really didn't realize that was occurring yeah i mean you know the it's easy to you know, to hear a synopsis or, or see, you know, a kennel full of them and be like, Jesus Christ, why would you give up on these dogs? The one thing, you know, to play devil's advocate and that, you know, we're here as a resource and I, I try to, to tread lightly on, on, uh, you know, shining a, a negative light on the units that, uh, that 
relinquish their dogs to us, uh, you know, for a couple of reasons, primarily because, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to be in a position where units feel discouraged to do it um, because they're afraid of the backlash that they may receive for doing it. On a broader point, I will say that, you know, it, it, it always, with every one of these dogs, it's not an easy decision for them. Um, you know, not, none of them are like, fuck this dog, let's get him out. You know, it's they've tried a lot of things. They've had a number of trainers and handlers injured uh, or, or people that, that weren't supposed to be bit and lawsuits against them and, and things like that. Uh, to for them to arrive at a decision where you know with tens of thousands of dollars and thousands of man hours and resources dumped yeah. into these dogs for them to just wash them out basically and, and relinquish them to an organization like ours is is not doesn't happen quick it's not before they've tried everything and, and exhausted every resource that they have to, uh, available to them to mm-hmm. to try to uh, keep that dog uh, and it's one that, that that they don't enjoy doing you know yeah. so um, you know I think to to coin it as, as them throwing them away, I think is, is probably a, a little unfair, but, uh, unfortunately that's what a lot of people think, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's easy to, to come to that conclusion when, when you see some of the dogs, we also spend a lot of time here just kind of letting them be a dog, you know, not putting any pressure on them, not making them do anything. Not... Kind of decompressing from going through yeah. it all. Is that a good way of kind of putting it? Uh, it's really the only way, you know, uh-huh. there's a lot of similarities uh-huh. between the dogs, uh, you know, PTSD wise and uh, human soldiers or law enforcement professionals. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, dogs respond very similarly. Uh, the nice thing with them is it's a little more black and white in terms of treatment and rehab and that you can, uh, you know, essentially just pair positive associations with things that historically, you know, they've associated with negative associations. So, uh, unlike with humans where you've got to, you know, rationalize things and talk about it and whatever with them, it's just, they have a a simple association that's bad with whatever stimuli and and you're going to replace positive associations with that. And, And most times, honestly, it's just leaving them the fuck alone. You know, it's letting them out, letting them run around and not hooking them to a leash, not telling them to do anything, throwing a ball for it for 15, 20 minutes, and, and over time, you see these dogs go from where, you know, if you grab them wrong or look at them too long or, or whatever, they'll want to fight or bite you. Well, and, you know, two months later of just fucking playing ball and feeding them and hanging out and, and not saying shit to them, now they're completely different dogs, you know. So the, I use the term rehab because it is, but but it's it's actually pretty simple. It's, it's really just, you know, kind of letting them run out to pasture a little bit and not not fucking with them for a while and and uh and nine times out of ten uh you know that that's all it takes to get them to uh, to finally kind of come around having said that there's still a lot of things that you can't do with them or that you need to be very careful about how you do with them whether it's muzzling them taking them to uh, the vet etc but uh here we are talking all, all about the warrior dogs but, i love it i love it man uh, i've learned a lot yeah, since we were just out yeah. you got a great place out there no i, mean, I appreciate it very yeah. much it's uh, we're, we're very passionate about it and uh and it's, it's a great program yeah i mean it's a great uh, thing man great thing it's definitely ha- has its moments but uh, we enjoy doing it so uh so your early career you spent uh, obviously, a couple of years as uh, you know in, in uh, the corrections facility, and then you were a regular sheriff's deputy. Is that? Yeah, I was for about I guess maybe two and a half years, and I knew what I wanted to do. And uh, they had the Hayes County Drug Task Force there, and they had just brought a guy in from the state police from Texas Department of Public Safety who had run the narcotics service as the assistant commander, and he was taking over that drug task force. A guy by the name of Regis Diarza. 
and just an incredible guy, great mentor. And I was fortunate enough for him to take me under his wing and hire me as a detective and, and start my process to finally get me where I, what was my goal at yeah. the time, you know? And, and what, uh, what department was that with? It was the Hayes County okay. Sheriff's Office. And what's the biggest? That's, uh, yeah. So San Marcos, Kyle, Buda, Texas, just south of Austin, Texas. Okay. Uh, right on I-35 proper. That's yeah. Hayes County. Okay. So, I mean, so during that time, what was uh, kind of the bulk of what you did there? Well, uh, I was pretty young, and, and so starting out, he wouldn't let me work undercover up starting out. So I had to really learn about all the drug, the drug, the narco culture, if you will, which is nothing like we see today. I mean, you can't even compare it. And uh, how to work undercover operations. I mean, basically starting, you know, very young, really, for most yeah. folks who are, become narcs. So this is in the, what, the 90s, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. it's early 90s, man. It's like 96, 95, yeah. you know, mid, somewhere in there. Yeah. And, uh I can remember my first day on the job with him. It was an, it was a, it's like a training day moment type thing. I mean, it, it really was. We meet at an old Shoney's, yeah. right, for, for coffee one morning. Next thing you know, you're in a bathtub with a shotgun. Yeah, right. You know, he, he, uh, I'll never forget. This is actually a great story. He, he's sitting there and he takes a, reaches over, grabs his coffee, reaches over, and he hadn't, we hadn't really spoken much yet, you know, and he pulls out this piece of sugar, right, you know, in a little, little cube, little thing, and uh, he throws it at me. He says, How much is in that? I had no clue, you know. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games, so join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm what, 24, 25 years old. And uh, said, I don't know, sir. He says, That's one gram. Don't ever forget it. Takes two more out, right? Yeah. So now I got three, takes another one, cuts it in half, throws another one at me. He says, how much is that? I'm like, well, it's got to be three and a half grams. He goes, that's right. Um, and what is that? I'm like, uh, fuck, I don't I, know. Fuck, I don't have half a Half shy of four? Yeah, yeah shit. I, you know, I've, <laughs> and that's how it started, man. Yeah. And uh, just, that's just how three I learned. and a half the, am the amount that it's. It yeah, goes. that's what they buy. So. So in the, in the drug world, and then from there, you know, we went into ounces and, you know, I, and that was the start of understanding the culture of buying kilos and how much they were. And he started that whole process with me about 
how the, they discuss that, you know, mm-hmm. that, uh, so anyway, that's, that's an eight ball, 3.5 grams. Oh, okay. And so, you know, learning the lingo at a young age. And so having a young face, being able to work undercover, I loved it. Yeah. I, man, I loved it. And so, I mean, back then, obviously, you know, narco trafficking existed, but not like it is today. What, what was kind of the, the, the big ticket items or, or what, what was the primary, um, you know, either units, organizations, or uh, or <laughs> drug any. of choice. Just there weren't any. It was it was mostly local match. college kids that I was buying from. You know, yeah. And and that's that's really, you think about it. You know, we're going back to ninety four, ninety five era. You're talking about you know a college town, a great community, um, not a lot of crime. You had some stuff coming up from Mexico, but mostly college kids going down and picking it up. You know, a couple pounds, ten pounds of weed at a time, things yeah. like that. Nothing. You know, now fast forward to where we are. Yeah. So it's drops in the bucket. Oh, man, it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, back then, was did meth even really exist back then? It did, but it was more of, uh, you know, the old P2P method, uh, the old way, and it was domestic cooks of the old biker gangs in Texas specifically, you know, oh, banditos, okay. things like that. Yeah. Mexican cartels weren't into that game at all. That yeah. didn't come until much later. So was it mostly weed and, and cocaine? Or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right, so you, you kind of learned the ropes uh, throughout that that uh, six year period uh, or so. What what was the the turning point that made you say, okay, I'm going to go from uh, you know being a sheriff's deputy now I'm going to go through the academy and, and go to DPS? What what was that? I think the big thing was is I wanted to work it at a at a larger level, and I also had this thing I wanted to be on the SWAT team. And I had been on SWAT with Hayes County for several years at, at that time as well. And so that was a great opportunity. They were hiring. I had my billets underneath me with experience. And so I was eligible to apply. And, you know, the state police in Texas are, are you know, they're well-renowned all over the country even. So I, I just thought it was a natural fit, you know. Mm-hmm. And plus my retirement with the county and with the state married up yeah. so uh, it, it was a good fit you know yeah. austin was paying a lot more you know the state wasn't paying a lot at the time but uh you know the texas department of public safety is a very uh prestigious organization yeah. in law enforcement yeah. world so it, it was it, i was very honored to be accepted uh, into that organization you talk about being in uh, in swat back even with the sheriff's department how active was that swat unit when uh, when you were on it they really weren't very active back in the day you know like that that team i think started like 94 95 in that same era uh houston pd swat came up yeah. and did the training for us for our basic swat school yeah. and then our, for our advanced swat schools as mm-hmm. well back then uh not too active but you know the county was pretty small then yeah. but I, I always thought a lot of the sheriff for thinking of that and the deputy uh, or the chief sh- chief of the department because it was very forward-leaning trying to prepare for seeing what was happening around the country yeah. you know and trying to get ahead of that curve because as you know you know the, the tactics and the training that brings a whole new spectrum to law enforcement which back at the time that was a big deal yeah you know that was a big game-changing kind of thing for that county and for law enforcement you didn't have all the SWAT teams everywhere like you have now yeah you know that wasn't the case back then yeah. you had just a few teams so it was a back then and, and I'll tell you it's really something you were really really considered specialized then yeah you know if you had that training so mm-hmm. it was something we were really proud of back in those days I mean at, to, for me at least at this point it, it's almost hard to even imagine what pre 9-11 was like because it's that that post 9-11 mentality is, has become so ingrained uh, when it comes to military law enforcement. I mean, 
yeah. even your average everyday citizen, whether it's, you know, dealing with TSA and flying or, you know, what, firearms restrictions, I mean, whatever it is. But um, so, you know, in, in thinking of it, it almost feels like a, a fucking lifetime ago. Does, you know, does. of really? yeah, because I, you know, I mean, I was in high school then, uh, just getting getting ready to graduate, but still, like, just the mentality was so different yeah. and so less forward leaning as it relates to emergency scenarios, um, at least as, as far as as SWAT groups would be uh, concerned. But no, you're you're absolutely right. I was I was on the state SWAT team during nine eleven. I was stationed in Bastrop, and uh, I'll never forget it. I was I got called to wreck. And I get to the wreck, and as I get there on the radio, they say, hey, you're not going to believe this. Damn little Cessna's hit one of the towers. And they were laughing about it, you know. So I get out and work in the accident and get back in, and uh, they're still going on. They're like, hell, that's a lot of smoke. You know, it's a little worse than they thought. Finish that up, and as I'm driving, uh, as I leave the scene, that I hear on the radio, you know, I mean, over, over the, the radio, they're talking and uh, the guy says, hey, man, another one's just hit the, the other tower. We're under attack. And I can remember calling headquarters and saying, hey, are we getting activated? You guys, hey, we're, and all the, the response was, well, we're monitoring what's happening. Jason, it's in New York. Yeah. And if we need to activate, we'll let you know. I mean, that's the mindset. Yeah. Now, I was on the state police. Mm-hmm. SWAT team and we weren't even activating because, you know, you still got roll time. You got a prep time. You got all that. But, you know, go exactly what you're talking about. That's a good example of the mindset back yeah. then of a reactive mode and not being um, in a defensive, proactive, preventative model. Yeah. You know, getting ahead of things. Yeah, I mean, you know, we as a nation, we were we were sleepy and complacent, you know. And it got uh, us. Yeah. It's uh, well said. Yeah. Well said. I think you're, you, you nailed it. Yeah, at, uh, times have changed, that's for sure. You know, oh, yeah. I, uh, I was in, in a platoon at SEAL Team 3 when it happened. I was actually on my way to work. So for us, for us, it wasn't a, uh, are we activating? It You know, it was just everybody just started getting their Where shit together. What, you know, nobody heard anything, but it, it was just kind of an understood thing that we all just started loading our shit and whatever and ended up not going anywhere, <laughs> you know. But yeah. but uh, at least my platoon didn't, uh, not, not for a while. But... Um, all right, so can you walk us through? So you go through the academy. You talked about uh, you know the difficulties, the, the strenuous challenge that that was. What was it like, you know, once you finished that, and, and now your early career in, in DPS before you took on some of the more supervisory roles? Yeah, uh, so my first duty station was El Paso, and I got to tell you, that was a great duty station. It really was because out there you were the man. And, yeah. and what I mean by that is, is that you had the road all to yourself. You know, El Paso wasn't near the size it is now. And man, I loved it. Yeah. I really did. I loved it. And what happened is they had the wall out there, Operation Hold the Line, they call it. So what it was doing is it was pushing all the drug smuggling out to the areas where we were. We used to call them suicide loads. What they would do is they'd cross them and uh, you look over on Interstate 10 and hear a vehicle come in by, and you could see the weed through the windows as it went by. And the pursuit was on. I mean, it was a fun job. We like didn't work accidents. All, it, that's exactly what it was. And so I loved it out there. I, now, it was different in that, uh, you know, I didn't have any family. My wife and I were there, and uh, it was just the two of us. So, you know, you're young, and, you know, you complain a lot about stupid shit. But the truth is it was a great job, great gig, and uh, I enjoyed it out there. What learned the, a lot. Yeah. Learned a lot about being on a border and how things were evolving because we were seeing things like what I'm describing to you with these suicide loads crossing. And I'd go back home and tell my family and other people, they'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. None of this was getting out to the American people. Yeah. Um, 
or anyone else for that matter. Not because it was a secret, just the way of communicating within law enforcement circles, you know, yeah. doesn't doesn't go real well. Where back then were they? Were some of those diversionary tactics where they'd send one light load that was super obvious to get everybody focused on them, and then bring you know three or four big ones? Were they doing more advanced shit? Like no, that? it was nothing like that back then. Now they did have some handheld radios, yeah, but they weren't encrypted; they were open. Yeah. I could tell you some great. <laughs> I could tell you some great stories of pursuits we had, yeah. man, where the bundles are going everywhere, <laughs> car is flipping and rotating over. And the guy lands on top of the car dead. Jesus. And, you know, uh, right, all of a sudden you, you get out and you get out of the car and you're walking up and all of a sudden you hear a guy in Spanish talking to you and you're looking around, what the hell? And it's a radio. <laughs> and one of the border patrol agents runs over and they start yelling at each other, you know, motherfucking yeah. one another on the radio. It's not, you know, they're in Mexico. And he says, he says, hey, how is he? And he goes, well, he didn't make it. He goes, all right, where are you going to take him? I'll tell the family. You know, yeah. cartel guys. Yeah, it, it was it was crazy. I mean, it yeah. was it was it was wild stuff. But it, a different world. And seeing now, thinking back to that evolution, that was where major tripwires that things were evolving, yeah. right? That now we see where we are. And man, yeah, was uh, were, were the load size? Well, there's two questions, I guess, from a load size standpoint. Like, what what were average size loads of? Of uh, I mean, I'm assuming it was mostly weed back oh, then. Oh yeah, like what, what was a, an average load size? They would also move controlled substances, cocaine. You know, um, never really saw any major heroin loads back then. No meth at all. Yeah. Um, but large hundreds of pounds of weed usually. You know, or if you got it in, and once it let. So the way it works in El Paso back then, especially, is they had to make it into the city because that was where the the suicide loads, as we called them. Yeah. Once you got in the city, then you go to a stash house and they break that load down into compartments, like in the gas tank and the tires, yeah. things like that. So if you caught it going north, well, then you're gonna you're gonna catch it in a smaller load that was more compartmentalized. Yeah. You, see, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So. What we used to do is we used to work out on Interstate 10 on the west side near Sierra Blanca because that's where they were crossing it all. And yeah. that's where the wall didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they could cross it because the water there is very shallow. So they'd take a bulldozer and they'd push sand into the river. And then they'd put these big metal ramps down and they'd just drive these vehicles across. No shit. Yeah, it's crazy shit. God damn. What, uh, well, the other question I had uh, in terms of you know, back then from a, almost from a, a culture standpoint, as it relates to the cartels is it, it seems like the level of, of barbarity and, and violence was nowhere near like it is now. Yeah. Is that a safe Absolutely. assumption? Absolutely. It was business. Yeah. It was business. And those older crooks have a lot more respect for those kind of guys because they were the real deal. Yeah. Uh, they are. And, yeah. and, and they, you know, those that are still alive, the very few, but yeah. compared to what you're dealing with today with these drug-infested, zombie-killing machines that you have now down in Mexico, it's, it's spun completely out of control. Yeah. Totally different landscape from back then to today. Yeah. What, what do you suppose, you know, from having essentially lived through all of that uh, in terms of combating it, what do you suppose the primary factor is for such an escalation in it? One of the big ones where we talk about, you know, kind of the quantum leaps of the cartels, you know, most, you know, most people who are in the drug world, you know, they, they don't have discipline, yeah. right? I mean, you know, hey, we're going to do a dope deal at three o'clock. Shit, they show up at six o'clock. Oh, man, sorry, we're running late. You know, typical deal. When the Zetas came in, in like 01, what they brought to the game was discipline and they brought tradecraft and they brought loyalty. All the things in the criminal underworld that you don't traditionally have. 
So the leadership of OCL Cardenas, because he was the first to bring in special forces into the cartels, that was a game-changing quantum leap moment. Because what happens within these organizations is, is when one cartel develops a capability, the other has to have it as well, because they, they counter one another. Mm-hmm. And that should have been a major tripwire to the intelligence community and to law enforcement that this was going to spin out of control. And instead, nobody did anything, and it yeah. just continued. So now, fast forward to where we are today. Every cartel has some type of enforcement squad. You know, back then, you know, when, when the Zetas first came in, they were former GAFE, came in about 14 of them, and then more after that. And then they began training their own people and then later split off to become their own cartel. But they were very loyal for a very long time to OCL. Yeah. Um, and then within Sinaloa, you began to see other groups like Anthrax, same kind of thing. And they began getting their training from special forces units down in Guatemala and others. So that's kind of the evolution. And when you when you see a new capability within a Mexican cartel, you need to that's a major significant thing because you need to know immediately another cartel is gonna have to try to either get the same thing or develop something a little better. Yeah. So the the, the principles of capitalism exist, but they're on steroids by comparison because they're they're backed by violence and and a lawless nature that uh, that has no ceiling, basically. Yeah, and you know the turnaround of these sicarios, you know, they got a lifespan of about three to five years, and and that, know, that's all they do is is their hitmen, basically, right? Well, not all of them. Every organization, it's really networked, right? It's really mm-hmm. dark networks that you're dealing with. So every one of them are a little different. Some don't make any money at all. They're just young punk kids. They really don't have a lot of tradecraft or a lot of skill. Yeah, they go through some training, but they don't get updated training, right? And weapons in Mexico are power. There's a whole thing to that that we can talk about too. But uh, so each one's different. But I will tell you, like the anthraxers, they made a ton of damn money um, with Sinaloa cartel. Even though they were hit squads and hitmen, they're all drug traffickers at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Um, and so they all move their own product, their own loads. Some are better than others. Some are not. Yeah. That's some interesting shit, no doubt. And we'll get further in depth in terms of some of the operations going on now and, and how they work. Uh, I would like to uh, do a little, a little more of the, the context as it relates to how you got to that. You know, so you spent your, your first early years um, on the street in El Paso, Wild West, uh, learning the game. From there, where did you go? I uh, went back, tried to get back home, and the closest I could get was Bastrop. Yeah, which is not too far, right? Not too far. It was close. It was a great place, great yeah. town, great community. Uh, got on the state SWAT team at that point when I was there, and uh, I enjoyed it. I stayed about a year, year and a half, I guess, and then uh, transferred to San Marcos afterward, and that finally put me back where I wanted to be. Yeah, and what, what did you do in San Marcos? Same thing, Texas Highway Patrol. Yeah, and so in both of those places, um, from a I guess a career standpoint, were you advancing and moving into more leadership roles or not yet? Um, with the Department of Public Safety, you have to do four years, and then once once you have four years under you, then you're eligible for promotion. And as soon as I was eligible, I started putting in, and uh, right out of the gate, I made narcotics. That was that was my goal. You yeah. know, I wanted to be a narcotics agent in the state police, and DPS narcotics back in the day was a big deal. Um, now today it doesn't even exist, but really? back then, yeah, it was. Why did it uh, go away? Do you know? Yeah, uh, the the world shifted, and uh, I will tell you, it was a big change in '09. The new director that came in got rid of that service. It was an entire service across the state of Texas. Also got rid of motor vehicle theft service and the criminal intelligence service, and combined them into mm-hmm. criminal investigations division. 
and then focus the entire agency towards the border and towards you know transnational and 21st century threats. And that's a big push. That's a big pull, man. When you take an agency that big uh, with that many people who have been doing the same thing for a very long period of time, you can imagine changing that ship and turning it to the new threat wasn't easy. What, speaking of, of the size of the organization, do you know ballpark how many on the street uh, DPS agents there are? Yeah, no, I don't actually anymore. Um, you know, you've got, and I'm going to round it off to just for some security reasons. Yeah. Um, so what we'll do is CID, Criminal Investigations Division, usually runs about seven to 800 folks. Highway Patrol, I would say, golly, it's been a long time, somewhere around 3,000, yeah. maybe a little less. Texas Rangers, you, you average about 155, 160 of those guys, and I'm probably behind. They probably got some funding and got some new ones in. And then uh, Intel and Counterterrorism, I can't mention how many people sure. are those based on what they're doing. But I can tell you it's uh, over 100, under around 400. Yeah. I, now, I know the numbers, but I don't want to, sure. you know, because of what yeah. they do. Needless to say, I mean, DPS is, a, is an, an enormous organization. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's about 7,100 people, yeah. you know, uh, commission and non-commission. It's, yeah. it's, it's a great, great outfit. Yeah. So, uh, so once you got into narcotics, what, what did that consist of exactly, of, of what you can talk about? Yeah, yeah. No, what it, what it consisted of at the time was uh, narcotics agents all over the state whose main you know, mission and priority was drug trafficking. And uh, we got to go after some pretty big players. It was, it was a great gig, you know. Yeah. Loved it. And is, is that all undercover work? Or? For the most, not all. I mean, uh, the world has shifted so much. You know, when you're when you're talking about the size of these criminal organizations in Mexico, and I can tell you for the last 10 years of my career, all I really worked was Mexico, yeah. uh, along with some terrorism things. But, you know, the Mexican cartels have taken over all of the drug world. I mean, all of it. They are by far, you know, the most powerful criminal organizations on this hemisphere. Yeah. I know that, you know, the, the actual narcotics division uh, doesn't exist, but but back then... Like, can you give us um, kind of a synopsis of, of types of things you were doing, being focused on on that? Yeah, sure. Uh, undercover operations, bywalk operations, surveillance. Um, I mean, you're basically buying dope, identifying guys, identifying the network of these folks who are part of smuggling organizations, and then doing everything you can to break them down and work with other local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies to take them down. Conspiracy investigations. Uh, OSA deaths, organized crime, drug task forces, you know, trying to figure out who the players are so that you can figure out the best process to work them and um, dismantle them. I mean, so to me, to, to hear that, my first thought in terms of question is, you know, like, and obviously some of that's some dangerous shit, but what, like, what, what would a, if there is a run of the mill or a routine, mission or operation that you would do like what what does that consist of can, can you walk us through something like yeah, that yeah sure um so first thing you got to do is make sure that you got someone that you believe is based on reasonable suspicion is at a minimum some kind of drug trafficker right you validate that through a multitude of things whether that's surveillance whether that's um well there's some other things that i want to mention that you do just by talking about normal investigative tactics but um, once you've identified and you're pretty clear that yes, that's the individual, that's the right person that you believe who it is. Now you start, okay, who are the co-conspirators? What are they doing? How is it operating? And then using people who are uh, in the criminal underworld as well 
to work as your confidential sources to help get you into these organizations. And the reason that's important, especially today, is because as advanced as the organizations are, you can't go in and undercover like you could in the 50s and 60s, you know, or in the 70s. Those, those, those days are pretty much sale. When you're talking about organizations as structured and what the trade craft that the cartels present today. And because they're in every facet of the drug world now, um, you know, you may be dealing with a tier one gang member or a street gang member, but what you don't know is that he's been trained and has been working with a cartel in Mexico for a very long time. So the world has evolved and it's, and it's changed dramatically as to how we conduct undercover investigations. And beyond that, that's about all I'll really go into just because I, I don't want to ever sure. give up any kind of technique. or pro But yeah. that's mostly kind of the process of what a narc used to do. Yeah. Today it's evolved tremendously and I won't go into really what they do now yeah. because things have, you know, the, the, but the old thought of, you know, hey, you got these guys deep, deep undercover. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah, it's all Hollywood. Yeah, yeah it's pretty yeah. much all Hollywood. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Uh, it does, but yeah. you know, when you're dealing with organizations who grew up together, mm -hmm. they don't let anyone in in their inner circle. You have to use new tactics and new techniques, and then I just won't go into those sure. for right. officer safety issues. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm tracking, and, and I I'm glad that you don't. Um, for, you know, in, in terms of you know the successes or failures that you had during that time, uh, were there any big failures where you guys you know really lost lost the game or, or were you guys pretty successful no i i would say that what you just said is probably a great way of looking at it it was clear we were losing the game yeah. and we weren't just losing it we were losing it dramatically yeah and as a country we were losing it that the strategies that law enforcement is undertaking whether it be the drug enforcement administration with the department of justice or whether it be state and local law enforcement that what we had traditionally done of going out and arresting people domestically uh, had evolved from transnational crime. And that, you know, we can go in and work a two-year investigation, spend hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of the state of Texas's money or other states doing the same thing. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And the, the organization that you just took down after working this for a year and a half to two and a half years is replaced in 48 to 72 hours. Mm from a foreign country. Jesus. You see what I'm getting at? So it, it made us realize that you have, we, that we, that law enforcement needed to evolve and needed to change. And I will tell you, there are still major agencies in this country that haven't evolved to the threats of today. And, you know, that's a lot about why I talk about why we need to designate the cartels as terrorist organizations and start looking at them differently because the investigative only model, you know, we got plenty of years of working this and we realize it's not working. Yeah. It's pretty clear. Yeah. 
Was that a big part of why you moved on from that into the further parts of your career? Or? No, the game changed. Uh, you know, after after uh, promoting to sergeant in narcotics and being stationed in Brownsville and watching the the you know Zetas come on board, and that's where I was. I was in Brownsville, and you know all that started in Matamoros, right across from where we were. And you know how we were buying dope from them, man. We didn't even know what they were back then. Or, you know, I can remember the first dope deal we did. We were buying 10 kilos of Coke for $100,000. Yeah. I was the flash guy. My partner was doing the deal. And right at the end of the operational briefing, he says, oh, yeah, by the way, these guys call themselves the Zs. And I remember um, one, of the other, one of the other guys saying, what the, I wonder why they don't call themselves the Xs or the Ys. Kind of like a joke. I had no idea what we were even dealing with. Yeah. So you, where I'm going with that is, is that, you know, we had no idea we were dealing with these people who had were gafe trained, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, had evolved into what they were because the intelligence wasn't there to help drive yeah. the future. And that's where things have really changed. Yeah. All right. So w with that organization in particular, um, A, are they still around and a huge major player? And B, is it, is it safe to, to say or assume that they, they were instrumental or they were the catalyst that really changed yeah. everything. I think that's a good way of putting it. I really do. Uh, what the Zetas brought, like I was saying, was, was the discipline, the tradecraft, yeah. and the loyalty. A lot of people, a lot of professors <laughs> I hear out there talking about them who never worked them, never debriefed them, never talked to, uh, talked to one, are under the impression that they turned on Gulf Cartel. That's absolutely false. They were very loyal. Even years after OCL Cardenas, who was the head of the Gulf Cartel, that brought them in, even after he was brought into the United States and arrested and everything, they stayed very loyal to him yeah. for a very long time. It wasn't several years before they finally broke away and did their own thing. And there was there was a lot to that, but uh, what they brought to was violence at a level that we had not seen before. Yeah, just I mean, I'm telling you, when I say violence, I mean things that were just. Can brutal. you give us an example? Yeah, uh, the Allende massacre killed hundreds of people, hundreds of men, women, and children. Uh, brutally, brutally murdered, and then guisoed, burned into ash. Guiso is what they call the stew, and that's that's a process of how they get rid of bodies. When was this? Uh, 2011. And what was the, the backstory? Like, what, what was the catalyst or the reason? One of the catalysts was they believed that some of the people in this little town were giving up information about the cartel, so they just wiped them all out. The whole fucking town. whole fucking town, gone, man. Jeez. Now, those are human rights violations. Yeah. I mean, you really think about that. I mean, an entire town gone, and, and you can look it up. It, it's it's just one of many things. What's that, the name of the massacre? Allende. Allende. A l l e n d e, I guess. Yeah. Or a. Yeah. Is there a a rivalry or a competition with them and the groups that are out, you know, moving shit up into California? I mean, do they reach that far, or do oh, they yeah. kind of stick to? Oh, yeah, no, no. Uh, the Zetas are, are, are basically rebranded now due to great work of DEA, U.S. Marshals, and uh, Samar, which are basically like the Navy SEALs of Mexico. Mexico got into this game because of the violence in 2006, mm -hmm. and they brought in their military and have been fighting the cartels as they've evolved ever since. So, you know, to answer your question about when you think, well, like, how far do they reach? How big are they? I'll give you just a quick example. Sinaloa Cartel is in 54 countries around the world. Wow. Cartel Jalisco, new generation, we know is in over 42. Uh, Los Zetas, at one time, we know we're, we're in over 32 nations. And the Gulf Cartel in 16. Now, things have evolved dramatically since then, so I can put out old numbers. 
But when we talk about the reach of the cartel, how far they're operating, um, you know, they're getting $180,000 to $200,000 a kilo of cocaine Holy in Australia. Shit. Jesus Christ. In Russia, they're getting $100,000 a kilo. In uh, Europe, it averages, you know, depending upon how good you're, you're, you're connected and how many keys you're buying, but about 90 to 120, just depending. And a lot of that moves through Western Africa and then it moves north. So when you're, you know, dealing with some of those countries, you can imagine the partnerships you make, relationships with other organizations. Uh, so it goes to show just how big and they've evolved because a lot of people don't realize that. They don't think of them on a global scale. We still look at them as this drug cartel, right? Yeah. And what I try to say and what I try to point out that today that what they are now is they are the Mexican cartels. They're not drugs is something they do. It's not just what they are. Yeah. What, you mentioned the price tag on kilos in these different places. What is one worth or go for here by comparison? Now, when you're down on the border, you know, it changes depending on how many keys you're buying, but about 11.5 to 13.5 a kilo if I was oh, wow. in South Texas. So their incentivization to go to Australia, Europe, Russia is way fucking higher. It's changed the game, man. Yeah. It's changed the game. And so, you know, I can I can be in a criminal organization in the United States in California, still send that shit, even though it costs me twenty, thirty thousand dollars by the time I get it up to to let's say Cali, and then ship it overseas and still double my money. Yeah. Or it's, tenfold it almost. That's what it, there you go. And now when you start layering it, right? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. So you see how things have changed this game. So, you know, Traditionally, dope move north, guns move south, money move south. All that game has completely changed. Yeah, it's not nothing like it used to be. So you know, the I guess my my natural reaction in hearing that is a couple is a number of things, but you know, the, with it being a a world trafficking organization, and it's with people, with drugs, with guns, with everything that they're involved in. You talk about labeling them a, a terrorist organization. You know, to me, there's a there's an element of, I guess, hesitancy that I'm assuming is taking place as to why that's not happened, and I, and I am trying to rationalize why that would be, and I I can't come up with anything. Do you? Can, can you shed light on? Yeah, that? you know, one is that it, by designating them, designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, one of the things it's going to do is it's going to it's going to screw up the little fiefdoms between some of the Department of Justice agencies like DEA and FBI, because now it's going to allow FBI to come in and play in their backyard and in their role. Where historically, DEA is in charge in Mexico. They, you know, That's kind of just the way it's always been. So there's some internal battling there. At the State Department level, there's some legitimate issues internally because it's going to you know, take away and change the, the background of who's who, who's playing in this game. It's going to bring a whole lot of new players to it. Yeah. But that's the point. Because we know the investigative model that we're utilizing isn't working. And the real key thing here that what that would bring is three, it's a threefold uh, solution. First is it's going to allow the Department of Defense to, to work with host nations because it's going to give them authorities. You know, right now, sure, you, you got a little bit of play here and there in certain operations that, you know, we can never talk about publicly but not on the 24 seven, 365 as we need to work with host nations, not just Mexico, yeah. but sharing intelligence with host nations around the world. That's a big one. Yeah. You know, not boots on the ground, but sharing information. The second thing it will do is it will limit their mobility. It would stun, I'm not kidding you, it would stun the average citizen to know, remember they got money, they can get visas. They have access to our country. 
it would stun the average viewer to realize how fast they move in and out of our country, moving product in and out. I mean, it's really something in just a short time span. Yeah. And then the, the final thing that it will really do is that designation is going to allow the Department of Justice by priority of the government, all of the Homeland Security Enterprise to focus by priority on the cartels. That is a big one. Yeah. Part of the biggest problem we have is that most of the federal agencies are still doing their own thing. DEA's working their drug cases. FBI's working their terrorism cases, right? And uh, IRS is doing whatever it's supporting and helping. Fucking over the average Joes with their well, but, right? <laughs> Good thing. Honest. Hey, maybe it'll focus yeah. them back where we want them, right? Yeah. This is a great point. But I, I got to tell you that uh, that's a big piece of it because going after their assets globally, yeah. that's how we shut them down. Yeah. So, you know, in, in true mic drop fashion, let me throw a, a couple devil's advocate questions at you just because I know we do have a pretty broad range of listeners and, mm -hmm. and, and I like to be as, as objective as possible, uh, you know, as, as much as I can be. But, you know, if, if you compare these organizations to, you know, say ISIS or Al Qaeda or, you know, some of the other big players or even some of the smaller players, you know, I'm sure that there are some people that that take the mentality of it's just drugs or um, what's the big deal? Do you, do you how do you classify or consider these groups to be on the same level as you know some of these other terrorist organizations? You know, the the roundabout way of saying what is the justification for for that classification? There's there's no debating that that by doing that it would help enormously in terms of combating yeah, them, yeah. but. You know, again, just looking at it objectively from the other side is is that you know to say, well, what what warrants putting that type of resource and and etc. into into those organizations? Because to me, you know, one thing I can say unequivocally is that the, the instant that you do that is that now guys I know are are going to be probably losing their lives fighting these guys because. Yep. No question, they're organized. They're funded. They're, they're. I mean, they're probably better funded than any other terrorist organization because of their products. Yeah, well um, said. You know, and so you know, to me, that like I've I've come to a full circle conclusion. You know, from a foreign policy standpoint, is that you know, even though I, I know that there are some negative impacts of of the amount of drugs and human trafficking that comes into this country, that I, I frankly think would exist no matter what you do. Uh, just same with prohibition or, or anything else, but is that if, if we're going to, as a nation, say we're going to designate this group as a terrorist organization and we're going to dedicate the full brunt of DOD, the entire American government, you know, law enforcement, judicial system, et cetera, at these organizations the same way we would combat ISIS, Al Qaeda, et cetera. Uh, that is a big game changer, but it also means those some of those resources that we dump in there are going to take some casualties. And, and to say yeah. this is why it's justified, what uh, what would be your response? I think that's a that's a that's a fair question that a lot of people w would want to know the answer to. So let's kind of go back to and say, okay, well, what are they doing, right? Okay, I've, I said they were operating globally. Let's let's talk about what they're doing inside Mexico first. Um, they've killed over two hundred thousand people, and that's a lot of people. Yeah. Now, it's one thing to throw out a number, but these are the facts. 200,000 people since 2007. Yeah. Uh, the tradecraft that they're utilizing. Uh, Two-way handheld encrypted radios, better encryption than most law enforcement officers on the, from local law enforcement down along our border, operating in the United States and in control of our 
southern border on our side. And when I say control, I'll go into the details of how they control that here shortly, utilizing Hal Collins and monitoring all of our officers down there, from Border Patrol agents to our troopers to local law enforcement, so that they can move product north and south, because so, they truly have oper- what we call operational control of our border. Yeah. They also have an encrypted network that spans Mexico, where they can, that from an infrastructure which they have built for their communications. Cartels have done that from one end of that country to the next. Today, they're advancing even to more things that I can't talk about publicly yet, but I will tell you it's something that no federal agency in U.S. law enforcement has. It's incredible. Now, that's on that front. Let's go to the military-grade weaponry that they're using and where they're getting those from. Most of those come from Guatemala. Guatemala buys military-grade weapons from all over the world. They purchase uh, surface-to-air missiles, mini guns, light anti-tank weapons, RPGs, hand grenades, all from, mostly I should say, from Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Who provides the training? The FARC is one of them. K-Bills is another. So who is the FARC? Uh, The FARC is a designated terrorist organization who not only provides training, but also is employed and is being utilized by multiple cartels and has been, that I can say publicly, from open source since 2010. Uh, You may remember the first car bomb that was cooked off in Juarez. You remember when the Juarez Plaza (laughs) heated up pretty damn good? You know, thousands of people died in that skirmish. Um, I shouldn't say skirmish. That was a true war when that plaza kicked off. So those are just some of the tradecraft that, that they're doing now. And where they're going is truly remarkable. So you've seen how Samar and some of the most elite units in Mexico have been battling. They're losing. Violence in Mexico has spun absolutely out of control. 2018, 33,900, just under 34,000 people killed. 2017, 29,000 killed. In the first six months of 2019, over 17,000 people dead. So they're on par to beat last year's record. And I will tell you, it is spinning violently out of control. Multiple plazas across the entire country are completely engulfed in in, in battle. So it's not a law enforcement mission anymore. There are areas of control that I I can't talk about publicly, but I can tell you that we, they, Mexican government, cannot go in and get these people, Mm -hmm. some of the leadership. They'll be shot down out of the sky, or they uh, will have major casualties to innocents. So they, they just can't. It's not that they can't get them. Yeah. It's that if they do, there's going to be too many casualties is really what I should say. Yeah. So with that being said, let's go to 2015. Cartel Jalisco New Generation shot down a military helicopter coming in to do an operation on them. You know, that was a major tripwire in and of itself. So we've seen what these quantum leaps in tradecraft and capability that law enforcement can't handle. I mean, the country, absolutely, law enforcement can't handle that. Yeah. So we have to be honest about it, saying, okay, where does our capability as well as law enforcement officers, where does it really end? Not only because of the weapons we use and, and the tactics, that, that's not really where I'm concerned about. It is the investigative model by its mere design is supposed to move slow to ensure that we're getting you know proper investigative techniques and proper things. And kind of going back to what I talked about earlier, when we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on investigations just to have them replaced in a number of hours, yeah. now what we see domestically is spillover violence into the country. Now that is a very, I will tell you, controversial term, what I just said. Federal government says that is not happening. They don't even want to give a definition 
of spillover violence. And there's a lot of reasons for that when we go into, into the Uniform Crime Report, why we're seeing crime evolve, but yet we're not seeing it in the data. That's a big player in it too. But when you go back to Mexico as to why we need to designate them, it's a whole host of the capabilities and tradecraft that I've kind of outlined as to what they're doing and the amount of people that they're killing. Yeah. It's, 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 it's incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's impossible to argue that. The, my follow-on questioning, again, not that we're in a, in a trial mm -hmm. or lawyer scenario, but is it because it's in such close proximity to this country why it makes a big difference because the you know if you look at say sub-saharan africa or even uh you know places in the middle east where we're not really getting involved where i i would say that there are equally staggering civil rights or human rights violations yeah. taking place you know in entire regions of of you know talking millions of people in genocide scenarios where we're basically turning a fucking blind blind eye to it yeah. you know it, it's it's impossible for us as a as a nation as a society as a military as a culture to police the entire world so you, you're yeah. faced with well who do you yeah agreed you, you can't turn your Absolutely. your blind eye to everything but on the same token you can't get involved in everything so what you know, given how how stretched we are in terms of being stretched thin, uh, logistically, resource-wise, manpower-wise, in fighting terrorist organizations, and as full as our hands are overseas, because it's not just the Middle East, you know, it's Indonesia, it's you know, the Philippines, it's, you know, all over Southeast yeah. Asia, frankly, where there's Al-Qaeda affiliates and, and ISIS sympathizers and, and things of that nature that we dump a lot of resources into. What would be the primary justification? Would it be the spillover violence or would it be the, the amount of drugs that come in? Uh, or or what, what would be your kind of your either number one or top three reasons why they should be outside of the, of the violence in Mexico component? Because there's, I mean, uh, unquestionable. It, it's yeah. a tragedy. No, no two ways oh, about yeah, it. Yeah. But there are a lot of tragedies. So, so you know, a, a critic may say, what about everybody else? Why them and not, you know, groups in, in the Congo? Or, uh, or it's a legitimate question because this is a major step, and I, I completely agree with that, and I understand it. And I know there are a lot of people out there that are going to say, hey, you know. So opening up authorities and providing tools doesn't mean you have to use every tool in that toolbox, right? Yeah. Every one of these organizations is a network that is operating differently. You know, one is a hub, one may be a spoke, one may be a wheel, one may be a mesh network. How you attack them doesn't mean you take everything to the fight, right? Yeah. Um, but what that will do is allow for the sharing across all of the enterprise at every level. So. How does it affect everyday Americans that are watching this right now? Well, last year, 72,000 Americans died of the opioid issue in this country. Methamphetamine has already shifted. If you look at the cartels and the amount of meth being shifted into this country, they this is all their thing. They have evolved and they are pushing more meth. And domestically, we're still talking about the opioid crisis, but yet the cartels have already shifted off that. That's not going to slow down anytime soon. And what I'm trying to say is that when they have this kind of military capability, law enforcement does not possess the ability to hold that line and, and stop that. Mm -hmm. But we also don't need to go in and start dropping bombs and putting troops on the ground. That's not what I'm, what I'm talking about. I'm saying that we need to provide the authorities for the intelligence community to be able to work at a much higher level by priority to hit them at every level across the world, not just in Mexico. Yeah. And I'll also say this, you know, we don't wanna fight here on this ground. We want that downrange. Sure. 
And I, I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah. And I want that border to be as secure as possible. We're not even close to that right yeah, now. Like 100% but agree. what this designation will do is by focus at every level, prioritize that. Yeah. And look, I get it. There's a lot of people that are probably listening to this guy from Texas going, what the fuck is wrong with this guy, man? You know, I mean, what's <laughs> happening in Texas? Is it something in the water? But If, if they're saying it about you, for sure they're saying about me. <laughs> but I, I, I got to tell you, um, we got to be really honest about, look, I get it. It sucks. I wish things were different. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Mike, I do. I, I wish that it was the way it was, that they were the old, you know, drug cartels, right? Yeah. That's not what they are today. Yeah. These are killing machines that, you know, if we just look at their armored cars that they're utilizing, do you realize where they're in their fourth generation armored vehicles? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it is an evolution that is yeah. incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, I know that uh, the technology and the resources and tactics and things that they're using are, are in many ways very cutting edge and, and in some ways better than because of the amount of money they have i mean there's there's really no limit to what they can possess I think. 60 billion dollar a year industry yeah no it's it's crazy um i would like to go back to the opioid thing for just a second yeah sure is it you said seventy two thousand americans died last year i you know i think anybody listening here's here's statistics and here's a lot of the you know the talking point headlines about the opioid crisis yeah what I'm curious of, because I, I legitimately am completely naive to, to that, that figure in terms of how it gets to that, and by that I mean is that people that, that get prescribed opioid-based painkillers and then they run out and then they go by, like you, you hear all these different stories about how that takes place. Can you shed some light on that number of 72,000? What is that impacted from? Is it from prescription stuff moved over into illegal shit? Is it illegal from the start? What What is that? It's, it's all of it. It's everything. It's everything. It's all. It's not one. I mean, I could tell you uh, some sad stories from a young girl who's driving down the road who gets rear-ended and gets a neck injury, goes to a doctor because she's having neck pain, issued hydrocodone. Now she's hooked because the damn doctor didn't limit that and stop that and they just kept issuing more and more and more now this young girl's completely hooked on this stuff that's one one horrible way another one is they go to a party and everyone's trying something and it goes that direction you know straight from heroin on before sarah discovered chumbacasino.com she enjoyed chamomile tea come on big jackpot and being in pjs by six let's go the new fun sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over 100 casino-style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast. With first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. So it's not one one size fits all as bad as this problem has become across the yeah. country. You know, I mean, it, it, yeah. it evolved over years. Hell, I remember in Houston in, what was it, about 05, uh, 06, the doctor shopping that was going on down there was unbelievable. I mean, hell, you'd see, you'd see people uh, that were literally around lines of people 
who were living homeless on the streets, lined up, waiting for the, the damn doctor's offices to open up, lined all the way around it. Yeah. Well, so, you know. You know the, it was just incredible. Yeah. So the thing that, you know, that I think of, and, and just because I, I've, you know, not that I'm super old, but I've been around long enough to know that the path of least resistance is human nature, you know? And so the thing that I worry about is, is the cat and mouse game. You know, if you take a look at say prohibition, let's just say hypothetically you designate these as terrorist organizations and you, and you just start leveling them. Um, and you're using the U S military, you're using soft forces, you're using, you know, CIA assets, you're using all of these. It'll be host nation mostly, you know, well, let's just, I mean, let's say hypothetically you have the ability to, to severely curb, Mm-hmm. You know, that is that, you know, h- how does that impact the the nation as it relates to, okay, well, now they're breaking into pharmacies or they're dealing with, you know, Chinese imports through ports of entry of getting, you know, pills and heroin and fentanyl and, and shit from, from other places and, and whatever. You know, again, I just because I, I know what, you know, ha- having spent well over a decade in the military and, and seeing behind the curtain a little bit of, you know, the different deals that are made and, and uh, where they put us and for the reasons that they do. And, and sometimes, you, you know, to me, just in the interest of my my fellow brothers that I know are going to be, you know, the guys on the, the, the pointy end of the spear of things like that do take place yeah. in some capacity, is that to me it, it needs to be, you know, very well thought out and, and unequivocally justified. I'm not saying it's not. To me, it's just it's important, I think, as a nation to think about all those things and not jump right into it. Obviously, there's a huge track record of, of decades of, of build up to this. And there's a lot of data, yeah. uh, you know, from specialists yeah. such as yourselves that, uh, that that I don't argue that it, that it doesn't justify it. I, you know, again, I like to to look at the other side of the coin and, and make sure that, that everybody's thinking about it. Let, let's say that hypothetically that does happen. You know, what impacts do all of the external influences as it relates to, you know, whether it's opioid pills or things from other sources, how does that play a role in your opinion to, let's say you do shut the, all of the cartels down or limit them very severely to where they're not being such a major player that they are. Does that stop the problem or, or does that just shift it to somewhere else? It will always shift it. We, we got to be real honest about the the addiction issues in our country. You know, we're, we're not stopping the drug problem or, you know, anytime soon. But where things have gone in tradecraft and in what the cartels are doing and their impact on U.S. citizens now and our ability to hold that line and protect the border. I mean, this is not about the drug thing. It's really not. Uh, it's a piece of it, Yes. But the cartels have evolved. I mean, I go back, you know, this is something they do. It's not what they are. Now let's look at the human trafficking epidemic that's now hitting us. You know, fast forward across that to the violence we're seeing across the country caused by the cartels. Well, people will say, well, Jason, I don't know what you're talking about, right? You know, I can tell you the first beheading that happened in South Texas that we had down there. I can tell you some shootout or uh, murder that we had here in South Lake. You may remember that in 2013. Mm-hmm. That was a designated yeah. hit from the cartel in Mexico. Yeah. That was that was a, that guy was a lawyer. I go into that a lot with him. Uh, but, uh, you know, that happened here in the country with a direct approval and payment made. And I got to tell you, the tradecraft as to how they found that guy, when that finally comes out on how that this crew chased him across the country, it's really something. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting case. Mm-hmm. 
But a lot of this in regards to, well, how does it affect the everyday American, right? This is, and this is, these are great questions you're asking. You know, Jason, it sounds good what you're saying, but how do we know this is a problem? Do you realize everything you and I have talked about is not captured under the Uniform Crime Report? So every, to, to the folks out there, the way it works is law enforcement uh, uses a system that was created in 1934 known as the Uniform Crime Report, UCR. F, it's under the, the auspice of the FBI. It captures murder, manslaughter, uh, robbery, aggravated robbery, assault, aggravated assault, uh, burglary, motor vehicle theft, sexual assault, aggravated sexual assault. Well, when you think of those, you say, well, shit, that kind of covers it all, right? But when you look at what you and I have spent the morning talking about, public corruption. Let me tell you, the public corruption occurring in South Texas is like something we've never seen. Um, the, the kidnappings, drug trafficking. Can you believe we've been in the, in the supposed drug war for, what, 60 years now? And amongst 18,000 agencies, we don't capture the damn data. Yeah. Money laundering, human trafficking, human smuggling, uh, weapon smuggling. I mean... Cyber, stash house, splashdowns, I can go on. And everything that is transnational and 21st century crime related is not captured. So when people from the north, and this is why your questions are absolutely, in my opinion, spot on. Because when, you know, I travel the country teaching this Mm -hmm. um, and what the cartels have evolved to and where they're going. And the folks up north say, Jason, we hear you. We hear, man, you're, you're throwing a good argument, but where's the data? Yeah. They're not lying when they say they don't see the data. Why is that not captured? Because of an outdated system. And what do we as Americans do? We blame it on the left and the right and the whole damn thing. The whole damn thing is an outdated system that we can't get updated. Now, to the FBI's defense, in 1984, they came out with a newer system known as NIBRS, National Incident-Based Reporting System. Much better. Um, it captures another 52 what we call index crimes, a lot of the other ones that I just mentioned. And it allows you to overlay the crime. So let's say somebody, you know, robbed you, assaulted you. It, it would capture each of those crimes. Well, right now it doesn't do that either. Yeah. Um, much better system. Mike, it's 35 fucking years old, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, could you run your business on data that's 35 yeah. years old? I still handwrite receipts. No, no. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, goddamn, yeah. we're not getting the... So, and here's no kidding. I mean... We as a nation aren't getting the little things right. How in the shit are we ever going to get the big things right when it yeah. comes to how crime has evolved? Yeah. So when I talked earlier to you about DPS changing toward the border and kind of we went to that, not all agencies have done this. And what may really surprise your viewer is that most of the federal agencies haven't done this. They're mm-hmm. still using these outdated models of investigating for two years, which moves at a slow speed against crimes that are extremely fast today. And here's why that's important. When you're talking about terrorism, active shooters, human trafficking, where we've got kids that can be victimized every 15 minutes, right? And transnational crime. God damn, we've got to move now. We, you know what I mean? Responding and cleaning up the mess, traditional law enforcement, yeah. doesn't work against that. You've got to get what we call a preventative model so, to get out ahead of it. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it just, again, as a, uh, a layman observation, yeah. it seems as though it mirrors the immigration problem in terms of asylum claims for, uh, you know, people that are, that are claiming, you know, that, that as their uh, justification for being here by just trying to immigrate. And 
you know, hearing the the staggering numbers of how many hundreds of thousands, I mean, there's almost a million people, I think, um, that are here waiting, you know, that are in detention centers that are, you know, waiting for their day in court yeah, to, yeah. to appeal to a judge yeah. or whatever. And, and so to me, it, it seems like it's kind of that same thing is that the, the numbers are in terms of volume are so staggering that it can't be caught up with is, is the, is the shortest, uh, way from a to B that is that straight line. Does that consist of designating them a terrorist organization now alleviates all of that and, and has an ability or does that? No, it doesn't alleviate it. What it does is it allows us to, to hit them at every angle. And it brings every authority and capability. You know, just because you have it doesn't mean you bring everything to the fight, right? <coughs> right. You're going to look at that network and you're going to say, okay, what kind is it? What do we need to bring to bring it down so that n- Mexican law enforcement mm-hmm. and government can go after them? Yeah. And not just there. You know, like I said, they're all over the world. They're in Central America and South America. So we've, you know, what tools we bring to the game, I'm not talking about boots on the ground at all. What I'm talking about is the authorities to get DOD's intel side sharing much more rapidly, 24-7, 365 with host nations. And, and you know, some of your viewers may be saying, well, hell, Jason, it sounds good, right? Uh, why? Why is that important to do that? You know, what is what is the the need from there? Because right now, all that we're using is an investigative model with DEA down there. Yes, we're sharing through DEA. They're doing some incredible work down there. But, man, it's not near enough. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not even close to enough. So, uh, you know, when you talk about, let's just say, one of these cartels, Sinaloa, for example, we know has got over 30,000 members. That's a lot of players. Yeah. I guess more from a data standpoint and in, in how outdated, you know, the the newest data system is 35 years old or so, you know, and I'm a, a big data guy, you know, whether it's running, I am too, man. running I, a business or whatever. You shouldn't be doing yeah. anything unless data yeah. validates what yeah. you're doing, right? Or, or, I mean, at a minimum to, to even understand the, both the, the size and complexities of, of the problem at hand, you have to mm-hmm. keep track of that. So what... Yeah. What is the solution for for just the from the data standpoint of how to get that where it needs to be? Yeah, uh, Nibers right now, which is the newer one, uh, it's in, it's running in about thirty states, and of the thirty states in the last thirty five years, still doesn't have every agency within the states. And what FBI is hoping is to completely phase out the Uniform Crime Report in twenty twenty one, completely shift to Nibers, which is going to be a huge uh, increase. It's going to help the country tremendously. But I am the first one to sit here and tell you that. Why do I want to use a system that's 35 years old? As a guy that ran Intel, and my job was to help. I mean, you know, we went at the cartels very heavily. The state has spent $2.2 billion, and now the governor just allocated another billion for border security. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. We've spent that since 2006. And in one legislative session alone, we had $880 million for border operations. I mean, we were sending, you remember the surge in 2014 mm-hmm. where we had the unaccompanied alien children? Yeah. We were sending over 100 troopers, agents, rangers, aircraft, boats, every week, 24-7, 365 for three years. We learned what works down there in collaboration. We dropped the overall local index crimes as a result of our border operations. Uh, by over 20%. It was tremendous. Yeah. So we know what works and how to, how, to, how to bring that to fruition and make it happen. But without the authorities in the long game to, to degrade the cartel's capabilities against law enforcement, you're never going to fix the problem in Mexico yeah. to make this a more manageable problem. For those of, uh, you know, the listener and, and even myself included, I had uh, a, 
a California fish and game uh, spec ops guy on here not too long ago, and we talked a little bit about <clears throat> legalization. How does that fit in, if at all, uh, to your idea of a solution for helping cut the, the legs out uh, from such a high demand? Does that impact it? If it does, you know, at what level is there an element of that that, that can prove uh, an effective component or tool to, to help with this process? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I'm going to tell you, I, I believe that, that that ship has sailed. You know, the old, the old thought of, well, hell, um, if we just legalize it, it'll shut them down, right? They'll, they'll go away. Well, that would have probably, possibly worked, you know, back in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Today, operating globally, you know, let's just say by pure chance we were able to shut it all down, right? They're already operating around the world. They've evolved to not just drugs but into humans, and they're making a shitload of money off human smuggling right now. Yeah. I mean a shitload of money. Uh, they've evolved into oil. They've evolved into legitimate things as well. So, yeah, I, I'm not a believer that if we legalize drugs in the United States that it, this would fix the problem. That old argument is that ship has sailed because of how big they've become and what they've evolved into. Yeah. I get, you know, one of the points that I brought up with, uh, with the gentleman that was on, uh, John Norris is his name, was saying that, you know, because there's, there's been obviously some states that have legalized marijuana. Obviously, it's had, yeah. uh, I, was, I would yeah. argue, not even no impact, but in some instances, it's made it worse. Um, you know, in terms of the, the cartels being able to operate with, with more... Uh, flexibility because there are places where they can do it legally and so they're they almost have an easier way to hide uh, growing it here doing it here moving it here etc my point to him was until whatever substance you're talking about is as available as a pack of cigarettes it's not going to have an impact you know and, and I, I stick by that just from a, a simple supply and demand standpoint take prohibition like to me it's all or nothing. It's either completely available everywhere and the government's yeah. a huge part of it and they're willing to put all of the government assets behind combating people trying to move it illegally. I mean, you don't see people growing tobacco trying to yeah. trying to move, you yeah. know, black market cigarettes because sure. there's sure. not there's just not enough market in it because they're so easily available. You know, yeah. to me, looking at it from that other side, I think that's the only way to possibly do it. As it relates to, you know, cutting them out entirely. No, I obviously if they're moving you know, upwards of 200 grand for a kilo of, of, uh, dope to, to fucking Australia. Uh, you know, they're going to do that whether we make it legal here or not, but then it's at least not our problem, I guess, is, is one way to look at yeah. it. But you know, that, that's a, a popular solution uh, that a lot of people have that I think don't, don't think that far ahead of it with it. And, and again, that's, that's my take on it is that it would have to be that, you know, that readily available for it to even, for me to think that it, it would even have a chance at making an impact, not saying that it even necessarily would, but until it's at that level, I don't, I don't see it uh, really doing any good. When we talk about the immigration issue, obviously that's a huge partisan thing. What pisses me off a lot about it is that, you know, it's, it's not really changed until this president took office and now all of a sudden everything that's been going on is his fault and is a problem, which, which is irritating. You know, there's plenty of things that this president and every president has done that I've disagreed with, uh, been critical of, thought could have been handled or done better. Yeah, you bet. But to me, in, in this case, like it's fucking irritating. Uh, you know, to to say that that there that there doesn't need to be a a staunch 
uh, control mechanism to be able to secure our border, in my opinion, is beyond fucking asinine. I mean, it's your your um, your arrogance has has led to your complete blindness, if that is your take, in my opinion, you know, uh, your allegiance to, to the opposition of the current president. Uh, has made you fucking retarded, frankly. Um, what What is your take on both immigration in terms of the impact that it has, and more importantly, what is the fucking solution, in your opinion, having spent so much time at, at the front front line of combating its its problem? Yeah. Here's let me kind of sh- explain what's happening, and then I can go into what I believe is the solution to, to, to this thing and, and kind of, you know, looking at the long-term strategic picture of this thing. If we go back to when these ca- the caravan effect, as I like to call it, right, when, as they began uh, getting up here, with the humanitarian crisis at the border that they talk about has absolutely affected uh, the security of the American people. Make no doubt about that. Now, why? Why am I saying that? Let's just go to the state of New Mexico first. Because of a lack of personnel within U.S. Customs and Border Protection, what they had to do was shut down the interior checkpoints. And for, for the folks out there, if you've never been down south, about 20 miles north, uh, give or take, you've got what we call the quarantine line, which is the last immigration checkpoints that folks drive through. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about down there. Those checkpoints had to be shut down. Now, they stop hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds of dope a year. They were completely closed in, um, I think it was March or February. Yeah, it was March. To exacerbate that, the New Mexico governor pulled out her National Guard because she said there was no problems there. Then to make it worse, as the humanitarian crisis just kept building and building, Border Patrol had to pull a shitload of their people from between the ports of entry to help the humanitarian crisis. So what it did for us as the American people is it has left our border wide fucking open and i'm just going to be very frank and i've been calling this since april and i've been saying that you can't have a swath of land that wide that open knowing how the cartels operate and not expect to have serious consequences so what happened as soon as those things occurred what did we begin to see you remember in april we had six sedana soldiers enter the united states with long guns approach two military guys in Clint, Texas, yeah. in a CBP vehicle, disarm them. Yeah, I saw that. You remember that? I do. I disarm them. Now, disarm them, and then um, hold them at gunpoint, held them there, right? Mm-hmm. Talked to them, had a conversation, put their guns back in the car, looked at everything they had, and then they fled back to Mexico. Now, I'll tell you what that was as someone that was working out there and as someone that reached out to Border Patrol to talk to them, is that that was them escorting large loads into the United States, large load of narcotics. We don't know what it was. It got away. What, what would you consider a, a large load volume-wise? Oh, man, at this point, with the way things are, shit, anything over 1,500 pounds of weed and anything probably around uh, – 30 kilos of cocaine and, you know, uh, when methamphetamine, anything over 10 pounds. Millions you got to remember that millions of dollars worth of dope. Yeah. And the cartel would never have the military in the United States moving a load unless it was that, it was a very large one. So, because you think of the consequences of that, right? If yeah. something was to go down. So that's a direct result. And now, why did they do that? I have heard from multiple cartels, from Sinaloa, who's operating over there, to CJNG, that it was send everything we got now, send it. Because it's open. Mm -hmm. It's wide open. They've never seen it like this. 
So we will have major consequences in 18 to 24 months. And you mark my words, start watching. You're going to see increases of drug seizures of methamphetamine, fentanyl, and cocaine across the country as a result of this. Mm -hmm. And it also happened in Texas too. So really the entire Southwest border, even though New Mexico I'm highlighting because of a multitude of issues, the pulling of border patrol across our border has really opened us up all the way across. Now that's just on the drug side. Now let's go to the human side. This is a major transition that no one's talking about, and they need to be, because what we're seeing and what the Border Patrol agents are dealing with down there is many of the people that are coming, Mike, they're from Guatemala, they're from El Salvador, they're from Honduras. They don't have the money to pay the tax, right, which is the peso to the cartels. And there's so damn many of them that have been coming, 100 plus thousand a month, that the cartels don't have enough stash houses to hold them. So it's historically... The way it would work is they would put them in a damn house, hold them, use the women for sex, whatever they wanted, use the men to move loads if they didn't have the money, and then let them come across. Or if they made the payment up front, no problem. A few of them, hey, pay us later, whatever, right? That's not what's happening now. What we're seeing in large numbers is folks coming across who are indebted to the cartels because they didn't have the money to pay the peso. So if you're coming from man shit, if you're coming from... Let's just say Guatemala, it's going to average per person around 3,500 to 6,500. It all depends on how far you move into the country, how they escort you, all that shit, okay? So they don't have the money up front. So what they're doing is, is they're taking their PII data, the personal identifying information off their phone. They're calling their family members, their husband, their wife, their father, their mother, whoever. They're taking that information and then telling them, you're welcome to go in. Here's my number. And by the way, here's an account number and a routing number. Now they're indebted. Now here's where the game changer is here to this, is that for the first time, like it or dislike it, there is a process for people to seek asylum, right? So they're in the United States legally, but yet as soon as they get here, they're indebted back to the Mexican cartels. And God knows for how much, because just as we see human trafficking all over the world, you know, they just keep that bill coming. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You never really pay it off for years. Yeah. So never mind just the drugs. Now you got this. And here's what pisses me off the most. If you think that our our Department of Justice and HSI and ICE aren't seeing this, they are. The American people should be told. So knowing that we've got these gaps, why the hell isn't DOD sending more assets? Why isn't FBI, DEA, and what I call... And you've been hearing me talk about today, the Homeland Security Enterprise, sending more agents to help hold the line where we have those gaps. We know they're there. And that's where I go back to, shit, I know it sucks, but by God, if that's what we got going on, we need to send people down. Yeah. So It's a leadership issue. Yeah. So tomorrow morning you wake up and Trump says, retired Captain Jones, here's the fucking deal. The border's a shit sandwich, fix it. Get ready. How, how are, how are you? Some bitch is getting fixed. Yeah, what, so what, what would you do? Yeah, I'd pick up the phone and I'd call uh, Director Ray with the FBI and say, hey, good to talk to you, Director. Let's go have lunch. And sit down and say, I need, here's what I need. I can't hold this line. What can you give me? And this is just how this works in leadership. I mean, man, you've seen it. I know you have. Mm-hmm. At these levels, at these executives, one calls another and says, look, I can give you 350 bodies for six months. That's what my budget will allow. I can give you eight helicopters and three aircraft. In another six months, when some investigations break open, I'll try to do more. Thank you very much. Right? And then you just keep working different organizations and everyone working together. The problem is many of these leaders 
in the executive organ in these uh, executives within these large organizations don't want to get involved in this game because they know there's no end state. If it's you know hell, if it's Louisiana or if it's something else from a natural disaster, it's got an end game, mm-hmm. right? This thing doesn't have an end game for right now. So I get the hesitancy. I do. I even get it from Northcom side as to you know sending Title Ten people down there, helicopters and assets. I get it. But I look at the problem for what it is and not why I wish it was. And we've got to hold the line. We've got to get to that place. And we are not even close there right now. So, I mean, let's say that, uh, you know, just... Again, that's where my frustration is. And I, yeah. it probably comes across pretty pretty broad because I see it as a leadership issue. We've got a president that is trying to get it done and you see it, yeah. right? He's jockeying. He just jockeyed Mark Morgan over from Immigration and Customs. You yeah. saw he moved him over to CBP. So he's got his new leadership team there. Now he's trying to figure out this new czar position. Have you heard of this, this new border czar position? Let me tell you what that is. What that is is the fact that it's who is going to control the authorities and the purse strings to get these other agencies to work together. And that's why he's creating this new position. There's no doubt in my mind. And trying to give that enough authorities to make sure that this is getting done. He's got a big country to run. He needs somebody to be able to handle this issue and make everybody in the game work together. And look, I'm not trying to come across as an asshole or a guy who thinks he knows it all, but I've been on that border working multi-million dollar operations. And I know what the cartels don't work well against. I know they cannot function when the helicopters are up. They cannot function when boats are in the water because we take back the river. But we don't have the assets right now, but and that's me, easy fix. The taxpayers paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? to, to me, it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, many areas of rural um, Pakistan, Afghanistan border of taking ground, losing it, taking it. You know, it, it's taking it and maintaining it is is the, the hard key. part. You know, and, and that's what we're not doing. And, and you see. Yeah. You know, well said. Well just said. Piece, pieces of land that are, are essential. I mean, I won't say they're useless. You know, they have a tactical advantage, whether it's elevation or a choke point in a valley or whatever the fuck it is. But uh, they, they have a reason to be taken, but then they're not held and then they're, they're having to be retaken and you're losing American lives over and over and over for the same fucking patch of dirt. And, and to me, there, there is a parallel with, with the border there. I can tell you my opinion on it. Uh, I think it should be secure. Uh, to me, there's no two ways about it. I, I don't view it any different than I do my own property here. Uh, you know, the, the acres yeah. that exist here, if somebody who I don't know and doesn't belong here comes on here, they're going to get dealt with with absolutely no fucking hesitation. I don't care who they are or why they're here. Uh, that's how it's going to happen. Um, to me, that that's how a country should be run. Uh, there's no... There's almost no other countries uh, that exist on this planet that uh, that have such porous uh, boundaries uh, on on such a large scale that uh, you know that can have any real authority to to be able to to police their own citizens and maintain some order of good discipline. What I am curious of, obviously, there's the realistic approach that you would take if you were in charge of how you would have to do it from a no bullshit like hey sky's the limit you can do whatever the fuck you want like what's the best way to do it with absolutely no restrictions or uh, you know being handcuffed at all by budgets or having to work yeah. with you know what like how would you do it if if you were just hey you're the president you can do whatever the fuck you want like what's the fastest way to, to actually get the problem under control so you know i've, I've identified fbi dea and in, in the department of defense but the truth is 
man, we got a shitload of federal agencies with badge holders from, you know, the National Park Service, you know, in Washington, we got people guarding federal buildings. There's a whole plethora of law enforcement that can be brought down to hold the line. And once we hold it and we've got the assets in the air and boats on the water, right, to hold that ground and know what success looks like. And what does success look like? Success looks like when the gotaway data, which is a term for those who, who get through, when those numbers drop dramatically, and we know when, when we're winning and when we're losing based on the data that is collected every day by U.S. Customs and Border Protection. When we, when we finally figure out that we have got that line held, the wall is up, then we start pulling forces off and we start seeing where that line of can be hold with U.S. Customs and Border Protection, right? For yeah. the long game. Because yeah. I'm talking about the strategic long game here. Because once the wall is up, it's going to help us tremendously with people. Drug game will continue to evolve. They're going to go to heavy lift drones. They're going to do a lot of advanced technology that they're already moving into. Uh, they're going to move to the water as well. But holding the border, once we do that and we know we've got it, then we can start pulling assets off to figure out what right looks like in the future. But I got to tell you, right now, as open as we are, the world knows that if you're going to come to the United States, you come through that southwest border. And there are 35,000 Africans, Haitians, and Cubans at the Darien Gap as of a week ago moving this way. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, many people, I think, believe that it's a Mexico-U.S. issue. With the current migration issue affecting us, it's a global issue. That's one of the things we haven't really talked about is that, you know, that, that porous nature with which the border exists uh, also, you know, it's, it's, poor, it's not, uh, you know, relegated to just, you know, Hispanic people. There's, you know, I, I know there have been instances of terrorist organizations trying to funnel people uh, here. I, I haven't seen a lot of examples of that, but I've seen some. Can you speak to, to any of of the more serious nature of... Man, I'm so glad you asked that question. Now, I, I'm bad with these names, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm going to explain this too. So I'll, I'll just I'll just rattle off a few that I know some of your, your viewers will know. Okay. Abdullah Sharif. That name sound familiar? October 1st, 2017. He's the guy that created the terrorist attack in Canada, in Edmonton. Do you remember he ran over that police yeah. officer, threw him into the air, he yeah. falls down, he comes over, two knives in hand, starts stabbing him. That individual crossed our border illegally in 2011 and was arrested and then was released in 2012. We know that he vanished up into the Buffalo, New York area and then crossed at some point over. So we escaped straight up a terrorist hit from that guy, Somali-based. 2008, Abdullah Omar Fitzi, uh, F-I-D-S-E, for anyone who wants to look it up. All of these that I'm reading off are federal indictments. So what's happened is now you can go into the, the Department of Justice system and you can look up some of these indictments and you can start seeing the numbers of them that are starting to come forward publicly. And that's what I'm reading off here, mm -hmm. just so the folks know. I've got a few of them, and I'll, you know. Uh, walked across the port of entry in Reynosa, Mexico, requested political asylum, immigration, uh, figured something was wrong. He admitted to FBI informants he was there to conduct an operation for Al-Shabaab. You know, look, I, I can keep reading these. Yeah. They're crossing. Yeah. They're crossing with the support and help of the Mexican cartels. And I'll, I'll tell you that 
you know, like if the cartel guys were here right now, we're talking, you know, when we talk about a lot of people ask me, you know, Jason, will the cartels work with terrorist organizations? You know, would they do that? Well, really, when you ask that question, I think perception from the West is, is they keep terrorists here and the cartel here, right? Because that's, you know, how we traditionally have looked at things. If you and I were talking across and you were a cartel guy, you would kind of shake your head and laugh at that because they look at it like this. If they're in our backyard, we're the big dogs here. Mm-hmm. So will they work together? That term is is really the wrong term. Really what it is is would they move people who they believe are terrorists into the United States? The answer is not just yes. I can't tell you one confidential source I ever had that said, no, they would never do that because they would kind of harm Americans. It's not how this game works. Yeah, to, this is about money. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, like, from hearing how capable and, and resourceful most of these organizations are, I, I can only assume that, that there is a political element in terms of motivation or at a minimum from just playing the fucking game and, and realizing that, that, hey, the deal that you guys have, like, to me, there has to be an element of them thinking to themselves, let's not fuck this up. Because they're not dumb, obviously. Yeah. They're greedy, but, you know, to me, they're, they have to understand that that that's probably a game changer. At least if I was them, I sure as fuck would. In that if, if we start bringing in people where, where now we know, because they know you know our, our law enforcement and, and intelligence capabilities, if they start to become mm-hmm. attacks in this country that, that they can, can quantify essentially with, with no uh, doubt whatsoever that, yeah. that this originated from somebody coming across the border, that's going to bring the heat on them fucking immediately. And I can only ascertain, again, knowing that they, they wouldn't be in the positions they're in if they were fucking retarded, uh, is that Great there, question. there has to be an element of them Great saying, question. let's not push too many boundaries here or there, right? So if you're Chapo <clears throat> Guzman, right, you're a, you're, you're, and I'm just throwing that out there because I know a lot of the audience, you're a capo, you're the boss of the bosses, mm-hmm. and you push down the orders, we will not move these people in, in, across, Remember, this is the criminal underworld. Everyone says, "Roger that, boss. No problem." And it goes down from Chapo to the regional boss to the plaza or to the uh, the guy who's in charge of multiple states. Then it goes down to the plaza bosses, and then from there it continues to drop, Mike, and it goes down into guys who are um, sicarios and then hawks, right? And then you got ventanas at the lowest level. But let's just go at the hawk level. Hawks don't make any money. They're the ones that move product north and south. So the boss says, you will not do this. They say, roger that, boss. But they can't make the payment to their people. So they move their own product. Most of the people that I had that worked for me were in this realm. They were the movers and shakers at the operational level, right? Boss doesn't know what the shit we're doing down here on the border. They're going to do what they've got to do. And I've never had one source that said, oh, we would never do that because this could bring too much heat on us. It's all about money. Yeah. And so even though the bosses, and this is why you hear from the intelligence community, the cartels will never move anyone. Well, I just gave you two and one of them that did do a terrorist attack. Yeah. You see what I'm getting at? So mm-hmm. how are they getting through? Because it's the criminal underworld. Yeah. You know, we in our mind, we think of we take orders and we follow orders based on processes and policies and guidance, right? Yeah. That's, this is the criminal underworld. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. And that's, and I can't tell you, it, this is a great question because, and it's something that really needs to be articulated because what happens is many in the intelligence community believe this. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat across tables going, you don't understand what you're saying. 
You're monitoring the bosses, but you don't get how it works at the operational. And I'm sure it's the same with ISIS and guys yeah. you were seeing overseas. Am I right? I mean, well, yeah. And, and you know, the, the problem I think that you have with with our society is is think of think of trying to implement any post 9-11 security measures on September 10th, 2001. Oh, yeah. It would yeah. it would have been impossible. Yeah. Even if you said this is coming, mark my fucking word, we have the intelligence. We're going to stand up TSA, and you can. People have been like, "That's bullshit. You're infringing on my rights. This isn't communist. Fuck. Blah blah blah. You're not doing it." Yeah. Yeah. To me, in, yeah. until there is a legitimate terrorist attack that you can unequivocally track back to saying this guy came, you know, through the help of this cartel through this port of entry and and did this and killed thirty five fucking Americans at a shopping mall. Until yeah. something like that happens, I think there's too many people yeah. in this country that that are are purely reactive politically that are are just not going to fucking want, it, want allow, allow it until something yeah. like that happens, which sucks, you know. Uh, but I think unfortunately that's the reality we live in. You know, yeah. I do think that being able to say, look, you know, these guys were caught here, and and you know this is happening, and, and at least getting that out there a little more that. Uh, that shedding that kind of light would hopefully help, uh, you know, maintain some level of fucking sanity on the on the southern border. It doesn't seem to have thus far. Again, I think it has most to do with such a politically motivated, blind fucking hatred for the other side. In this case, you know, that's Donald Trump and everybody that isn't on his yeah. team uh, hates him so bad that you know. I mean, he could. I, I honestly, I don't think it matters what he does. It's it's Hitler-esque fucking horribly wrong, no matter yeah. what it is. You know, oh, yeah. there are a lot of people that are that way. And to be fair, you know, there were plenty of people on the other side that, you know, no matter what Obama did, it was the same thing. Um, you know, I, I think it is important to be objective and, and fair and say, you know, politics is blind on both sides. I will say I, I have not seen, not that I've been around through dozens of administrations, but I have not seen anything anywhere near this severe you know, when it, when it comes to hating somebody so fucking blindly that uh, that you're not even using common sense when it comes to something as as what I would consider so fucking obvious as border security and, and how that needs to be addressed and fixed. Because it's man, pretty fucking simple. We've been dealing with this shit for decades. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, how how long as a nation have we been having this conversation about yeah. sealing this border? Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, we really have. I yeah. mean, this shit has just been going on and on. And it's time yeah. to step up. And here's the thing. We've got the president that is saying he ran on this ticket. Yeah. What we don't have are the executive leaders in these government agencies that are pulling the trigger and getting the job done. And, and what bothers me the most is, is like, I'll give you a great example. Right now in Rio Grande City, that, that Rio Grande City station in South Texas covers 68 miles. We're averaging for 68 fucking miles, nine to 14 agents per day on the line. Yeah. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. That for 68 miles. Yeah. 
You can't, you they're know. arresting 500 people on average a day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean you see, so, so yeah. the, the, what they, what we title the runners or the folks that, for whatever nefarious reason, whether they can't claim asylum, whether they're moving drugs, what, whatever this game is, they're, they're exotics, what we call special interest aliens, those people who come from a country with a terrorism nexus, um, whatever, whatever it is in the spectrum, they can go through and look at the sign and see what we're missing, man. And we were missing a lot. Yeah. And there's 72 stations, yeah. just so you know, on the southwest border. Yeah, that's just not. <laughs> yeah. So the numbers are pretty damn high, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you mentioned uh, in terms of bringing, you know, all these federal law enforcement, but I know you had also mentioned that, you know, law enforcement has a, has a, a pretty low ceiling in terms of being able to deal, deal with some of the technology and high level uh, methods with which these cartels are operating. Do you have an aversion to using military troops? To hold that line? Not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I, you know, think of, and this is one of the things I think a lot about is, is we've been working with the military on the border in Texas, yeah, man, forever. I mean, our National Guard do incredible work down there, but Texas being held and has, Texas has spent a lot of money. Yeah. It's time for the federal government to step up and get this job done. And so, you know, we have aircraft that we know that the cartels will shut down. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, it's an interesting thing. I was going to show you what it looks like. But if your river runs like this in South Texas, and we'll just talk about Texas because we're it's Texas snaking guys, back right? And forth, it's back basically. and forth, man. And along the, the river runs a road, uh, Highway 83, right? And so what happens when you talk about the smuggling of people and things, Highway 83, where these bins come close to the to the roadway, is where we have a lot of the smuggling activity because it's closest in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. So you have hawks by the hundreds, and they are watching every law enforcement officer. They are at every airport in South Texas. And when that, air, that aircraft takes off, they're calling it out, heading northwest, heading southeast, whatever it's going, right? Yeah. So... They're on two-way handheld radios talking back to what we call Synthral. Synthral is like leadership and command and control that are hearing everything happen. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you. And so a bend in the river is open. That's what we call a gate. And, that's what, and I call it that because that's what the cartel calls it. Yeah. Okay. So when that gate is open, they move product. Whatever that product is. Is it people? Is it dope? Whatever it is, man. So what the wall does, and there's a lot of people out there that talk about the wall and how does it help. Well, the wall holds you long enough because when you don't even have 50 to 100 yards to make it to the main road or to a stash house before law enforcement arrives, that wall holds you long enough for us to get there. So it's not a matter of if you bring a 21-foot ladder to a 20-foot wall, I've heard that argument. The wall really does hold them long enough so we can get there. Yeah. That's the goal of the wall. And it, it will work great for people. What it won't work for in the long game is drugs and other things that are going to start moving north. And what my, my concern is is that what we continue to do is talk about symptoms. If you notice, you and I have really focused a lot on that, you know, from human smuggling, human trafficking, all those things, drugs, et cetera. Yeah. But when do we go after the people who are causing these problems? Yeah, well, I mean, to me, the, the, there's a whole other aspect of, of the demand. Yeah. You know, if there's not a demand for sex slaves, for cocaine, for opioids, for fentanyl, for heroin, for methamphetamines, I mean, that, that is a completely different element of, of combating that. And, and it's one that, you know, to me, it, it's cutting the snake's head, head off uh, in, in some ways. But, you know, to me, maybe that is a, not necessarily a better solution, but to me, it's it's equally as important. 
it's a whole other fucking episode as to as to how you you know try to combat that and and, and work with that and you know some people are are you know big fans of just treatment some people are are big fans of making the punishment so severe that it that it stifles the the desire yeah. to even want to try it i mean you know again that's that's several hours of of discussion too but i think more from you know as it relates to this standpoint and i agree you know from a wall standpoint it, it just for people that say walls don't work it just it's fucking absurd does it stop everything no it doesn't but there wouldn't be walls around every fucking thing here in this country that, that you wanted to protect it if they didn't work, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's an absurd argument. And again, it's, it's one that's un, unfortunately polluted by, uh, by political blindness and, and hatred, I, I think. But um, one thing that, that we didn't talk about, uh, or at least yet, and we talked a little bit, of, well, actually, before we get into, you know, some of the Border Patrol units. I know that some of the things you can't talk about, but uh, in still talking about the military a little bit, one of the biggest criticisms or concerns, I think, that, that a lot of people that are either not on board or or even on the other side are, are completely against using the military is, is they're worried about, you know, trigger-happy uh, 19-year-olds that, uh, you know, just start start yeah. fucking yep. shooting people or whatever what legitimate what, yeah i mean what, so what is your your thought process on you know how how do you utilize them but more importantly is that in a situation because this is the my first thought of if you've got that border lined with you know whether it's national guard or you know border patrol tactical units or u.s army marines whatever is that you know you've got a stream of a couple hundred or even a couple of thousand just flooding across you know yeah. and, and trying to overrun what what are the rules of engagement how do you how do you deal with that as a as a military unit or border patrol law enforcement whatever is that let's say hypothetically you've got that entire border completely covered mm-hmm. uh what do you do in those situations yeah no great question so it's two things that we learned and you may remember this you remember the the shooting we had with the goat herders back under bush when he was the governor here I don't. Do you remember that? Um, I may not have been. Young man. It was, was, I want to say, early 90s, and uh, they had sent a unit down there. They hadn't been trained in use of force, and they hadn't been trained in tactics of the cartels and what they do, and ended up making a bad shoot, killing a young boy, um, and not understanding, you know, your use of force and what Chapter 9 of the Texas Penal Code allows for. So what we do in Texas and what we have done for a very long time after that is that anytime we deploy or we work with the National Guard, they get trained first in use of force training and use of force continuum as to what force they can use based on whatever is being applied against them, right? And then the second thing is cartel tactics and what they can expect. And I'll tell you, it's when you get into it and you start showing them cutting pe- people cutting other people's faces off and things, it really wakes them up pretty good to this. But those are the two things that need to be done before anyone goes to the border. Plain and simple. We've learned that, and it has worked flawlessly ever since. So we know that works. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really concerned about some of the Title X guys that have been going down in other states um, where we're seeing some engagement there, and not, um, I'm, I'm hearing that they're not getting that training. That is a, that is a must thing. I mean, look, we got to be real honest about this. And that is that our military is really good at killing people and breaking shit. And when we ask them to get on the line and and do law enforcement type of duties as lookouts and listening posts, which is what I'm referring to, or we put them in teams of one and two, like we've done along the border, and they stand in a stagnant location, they hold the line, and when they see something crossing, before it even gets to them, they're already calling out. So law enforcement 
can interdict. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what we're that's what we're referring to. So there's a lot of capabilities in the what we call the layered approach to be able to have an eye over the horizon view to know what's coming before it gets to us. Yeah. Okay. So that's how we would use them on the ground, and that's how we have been, mm-hmm. and it works very effectively. But you know. We're we're fighting a change in rhythm, and you know I, I get it. If you're a general in Northcom, your first question is probably going to be, "What's the end game for this?" Right? And that's a right. You know, we 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 have wars and we win them. When is this thing going to end for us? Well, you know, there's not an answer up front. But what we do know is that this threat has evolved, and we've got to look at it differently. Yeah. In that hypothetical, though, let's say they've been trained in use of force. They are used as basically scouts or lookouts and, and radio operators mm-hmm. to, to inform law enforcement. But let's say there's a thousand people, you know, that are all just scurrying or just flooding at once. And they're just, they're overrunning. Yeah, that's that, happening now. That, that board. Yeah, so that, that's, that's a real, what you were saying is yeah. literally happening right now. So, you know, yeah. again, if... If your ROEs and your use of force are such that, well, your life has to be in danger for you mm-hmm. to engage or whatever, again, knowing the cat and mouse tactics that cartels and just people that are trying to come here are going to use, they're going to know that within 10 minutes of that being our policy is that if you don't have a gun or you're not throwing rocks, you're not going to get shot, then that's what they're going to do, right? Agreed. But I will tell you, that's the, that's the rule for law enforcement officers, right? Um, you, you can only use force whenever you can justify that force, yeah. right? And based on what someone else is doing, it, it determines what your reaction is. It's the same thing. Now, I'm, I'm saying that they need to be down there full kitted, yeah. full kitted out. I'm talking, you know, M4, ammunition, body armor, the whole shebang. I mean, this environment is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Do, do you think that, that in, in situations... That, just so you know, they're that way now under Title 32. Now, under Title 10, that's not what I'm hearing in other parts of the, of the, yeah, of the country. They're not but fully I'm not there out. seeing that, that they're not fully kitted out. And to, hence... Why in Clint, under the first incident, you saw them take away a pistol? That's a problem to me. Yeah. You don't put men in harm's way and don't give them resources to protect themselves. Yeah. So in a situation like that, you know, again, if I'm thinking the leveling up worst case scenario is that even if we do have, you know, a wall there and troops lining the border, uh, but they start sending groups of hundreds or even thousands at a time where there's just no way to to combat them without actually engaging, you know, to me, that's a tough decision that somebody in that position is, is going to have to make because if, if they're doing that, those two mechanisms, which a lot of people are saying, that's what we need to do to secure it. If I'm them, here's how I combat that is I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to test the water. And if you're not going to shoot 500 people that are coming across, well, we're going to send 500 at a time then, and we're still going to get them across. So at that point, do you shoot them? No, the answer is no. I mean, the answer is no to that. Um, but what we do is we, you know, it's never, it's never, it never really happens like that. We know where the, where the numbers are gathering. We know what's happening over there and we know when the timelines are most likely when they're going to cross. So, you know, that's where intelligence driven operations make us successful. And we prepare for that. Yeah. And we put boats in the water and we put aircraft in the air and we let them know what they're planning, that we know it. And we start holding that off before it ever hits us. Yeah. Now, I'm going to tell you that right now, a thousand people are crossing at a time. I mean, they, these things are happening now and we're not having these kind of engagements. So 
you know, law enforcement knows how to work. And when you're down there, just like you guys, over, you know how these things work and how to apprehend people and what you can and can't do and what the rules of engagement are. Yeah. And, and everyone makes it work. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect and we're not going to have issues because I can assure you, yeah. you can't secure 2,000 miles of border and have the level of tradecraft that we're up against and the level of military-grade weapons that the cartels have and not think that they're going to make adjustments like you're saying, because you're absolutely right. Yeah. There will be engagements, and people will be shot, and people will be killed. That is going to happen, but it's happening now. Yeah. Well, you know, you know to me, the it, it seems odd to me, I think, that for some reason uh, on that southern border, there there is a a change in in ideology, perspective, uh, a, a paradigm shift as it relates to that in that, you know, to me, there, there, there ultimately comes to a black and white decision in that you either have a sovereign nation or you don't, Yeah. you know, and, yeah, and, well said. and I don't know in like try, trying to think of another capacity where hundreds or thousands of people from, from outside this country are flooding into somewhere and that, action is not taken. I, I can't think of one, you know, uh, take a military base or, you know, I mean, fucking anything. I mean, a police station, what, I mean, you know, so to me, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the, the first mention of that, most people's responses, well, fuck, you can't do that. You know, I'm happy to play devil's advocate on the other side too. Well, why the fuck not? Yeah. I mean, yeah. honestly, is that I'll tell you, if, if 200 people were, were flooding my property line, I'm shooting them. I'll tell you right fucking now. <laughs> if I go to jail, so be it. But I'll tell you right fucking now, if two people, if one yeah. person is running across my fucking driveway and I come out there with a gun and I say, fucking stop, I don't care if you got a gun in your hand, a rock, you could be naked. Yeah. That'd probably give me more reason to shoot somebody if they were naked. But my point is, is that there seems to be some sort of blindness. Am I advocating slaughtering thousands of people? No, I'm not. But I also think that there has to be some level of like, let's hit the reset button at least a little bit and say, what in the fuck are we trying to accomplish? You know, yeah. and, and if, if, if what we're trying to accomplish is sovereignty as a nation, if, if we can't agree on that, then okay, let's have that conversation. To me, I don't know why that's up for debate. I don't think that it should be. You know, the fact is, is that you've got to maintain a, 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 an assemblance of a border all the way around your country or you don't have one. Um, for the people that think that you do, go spend a few days down there and, and, and you tell me if, if you think it's still possible and, and go down there with an open mind. Anyway, my, my point is, and leading into my, my question to you, is that is there an element of almost PR that exists that, that you have to combat a mentality that, that about half this country exists or, or that, that uh, possesses, rather, that, that makes it almost fucking impossible to do a lot of the things that we're talking about. You know, uh, there is. And I think if we're real honest, you know, when we talk about the border, what's the, one of the first things that comes to your mind? Immigration in Mexico, yeah. right? Because of the historical part of it. And what I'm trying to do is someone who's been down there, who has been you know, running very large intelligence-led, the part of it, intelligence part, of what were massive operations along that border for a very long time, seeing the tradecraft and what we're up against, what I'm trying to get across to the American people is we got to look at it differently. Mm -hmm. And we can't you know, just look at it on the immigration front. What you're seeing right now, Mike, is a spike. 
the Congress, like it or not, will work this out. You and I both know they are. It's a, it's a major spike in a long history of this country that is going to go away and it will be looked back upon. And when it does, though, we're going to get back to regular operations. And what we're going to be facing are people who want to come into the country, yes, but not near the numbers that we're seeing. We're going to be facing the Mexican cartels that have evolved into something much more violent and dangerous than we've ever recognized previously. And that we have to have solutions to that. And what I'm trying to say as someone there is that, look, I know some solutions that will work as someone that was there working in a collaborative environment, working with our National Guard, knowing what we can do to be successful and also recognizing where our limitations are. Yeah. You know, and fuck, I wish it was different. Yeah. But it's not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm trying to come across as a reasonable guy that says, look, you know, please, as American citizens, look at this differently. Yeah. Because it, the game did change on us. Yeah. And I believe that we, there are three things we're going to have to do, whether we want to or not. We're going to designate them as car, the cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. We must create a national comstat to fix the data problem you and I talked about earlier. And we must mandate collaboration, not only because of the border issue, but because if you look at what, you know, the intelligence community has been selling us for a very long time is that terrorists are working with cartels who are working with tier one gangs who are working with our street gangs, that we've got more threats. And I know you hear it all the time. We got more threats today than ever before. Well, we do. I agree with that. But they are different and they are beatable, Right. And what we have to do is adjust to that. And we need to make every law enforcement agency, the intelligence community, the Department of Defense, and the Homeland Security enterprise as a whole, come together, break down these silos that I know you as a frogman know what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. that are, exist, that are alive and well. And we got to work this by the 21st century priorities. That's what I'm trying to come across with. Yeah. And that it's doable. And, the, and that as somebody that was down there holding the line, helping to support CBP, because that's really what our role was down there. We were helping them. And where could we, where could we you know, fill a gap where they had a hole? What could we do to be you know, a partner here? That shit works. Sounds silly to say the word collaboration, but we know it works. So let's get our federal agencies doing the same thing. And you know, I don't, I don't want to come across as an asshole, but I'll also be very frank. The American people's lives are at stake, in my opinion, based yeah. on my experience and what I see and what I monitor daily. And for the folks that are questioning me, just go online tonight and type in and see the deaths and how they're killing people in Mexico. Yeah. The people that are committing those crimes, many of them live here and have the ability to come here. Yeah. And all I'm trying to come across with is, look, you know, as someone that was down there, let's think differently. Let's fix this for the American people. Yeah. They deserve it. And for some reason, everyone forgets about them. You ever notice that? Yeah. Uh, it drives me crazy. No, I mean, you, you see it a lot with uh, with a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of things that uh, that are afforded to people who aren't here legally that are not afforded to, to citizens. It's not just in the initial entry over here. It, uh, it's it's incredibly frustrating, and it's I, I think it's um, borders on immoral that it's it's uh, cloaked in the guise of morality you know to do so when you know by in the process you're fucking over your own countrymen i just i, I don't i don't get yeah. it well um, said but well said um can you speak a little bit to the in terms of of the the staggering numbers because i know they are but if, if you know them kind of off the top of your head specifically how many people are coming across on average per day uh but more importantly how many people what is the percentage of people that are actually detained versus not uh, okay. That's a great question. So 
U.S. Customs and Border Protection breaks down the numbers by three real categories. You've got uh, what they call apprehensions, which is no-brainer there. Then you've got what they call turnbacks, and you have what they call gotaways. Those three numbers determine kind of how that 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 um, uh, that station is doing. And we have 72 across southwest border. Apprehension numbers really don't mean anything because if you think about it, it could be a multitude of things as to what's driving them up or what's driving them down. The, the big takeaway is that they're captured and they're in safe custody of law enforcement. What you should look at is the gotaway data and the, and the turnback data. Turnback data is where someone is crossing, they see an agent and they go back. So you count that number as a check mark, right? Those that get away are usually measured by footprints, by uh, sensor traffic or whatever, but they're counted every day. Not all of them, just whatever the agents happen to see, right? And that gives you a number of how you're doing. Now, one of the things that I, that I say is that the investigative model that is being used by Border Patrol right now, I don't agree with. I think it's an outdated model. We need a preventative model where we hold the damn line versus if you ever watch Border Wars, and I know the folks have seen that show, it's a great show, you'll see the agents will say, hang on, get down, here they come. And they let them swim across, and then as soon as they do, they grab them. That's an investigative model. Yeah. We detected them, we apprehended them, now they're going through a process. Well, really, you should have stood up and said, hey, if you come over, I'm letting you know, Francis, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you. Yeah. That's a turn back. Those turn back numbers should always be three times to at least minimum double what your apprehension numbers are. But if you look, it's always the opposite way because we're still doing an investigative model that we've always done. Yeah. That's where I'm saying, if you really want to measure success, you can do it in that data. So even just something as simple as a policy shift of saying, hey, instead of using an yeah. investigative model, prioritize the, the turn back solution so you're not having to uh, you know, process them. I, I guess the, you know, the, for me, my, my natural instinct is to say, okay, one of the potential issues with that is now you're giving them another opportunity to, to not be caught. It's a great question. And that's exactly what Border Patrol would tell you. Because now if they come now, at least I get them here versus going down the line. But we should be holding the water and holding that line. If they go down, fine, we should hold it there, right? And we should have enough manpower to do it. Where right now, part of the reason they do exactly what you're saying is because they know if they do go down the way, they may not be able to get them, yeah. right? And so at least they're here, they can, but also because it's outdated models that we've always been doing. Yeah. And if you look at the system down there, it's totally broken. I mean, you know, we're talking about Border Patrol and enforcement. You know, the other part we hadn't talked about is the, the uh, convictions of these things. You know, you've got judge issues, you've got uh, not enough of them for the crime that we're seeing down there. Yeah. There's not enough prosecutors to prosecute all these cases that are crossing, and not just with the spike. I mean, normal drug loads, normal assaults on Border Patrol. So our entire system is hindered right now. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's, it's a combination of, yes, getting rid of the investigative model and going more for the, for the turnaways, but you can't Nailed you it. can't do that until the line is held, or you're just gonna, and you get the wall. Yeah, the wall's going to be incentivize them exactly. trying somewhere else. Yeah. And once once Congress does fix this loophole, that will shut down these massive numbers that we're dealing with, yeah. and then uh, help us understand where what what right now looks like again. Yeah. And going back to your original question, earlier, what number of resources we're going to have to borrow from other agencies? Yeah. You know, so one of the things that I, I think, uh, and, and again, I, I try to bring a little different perspective, both maybe a little more non-biased or at a minimum, um, 
you know, bring a perspective that uh, maybe is just a little bit outside of, of the norm or kind of coming in from left field. And, and to me, it, it's the sentencing and, and the punishment that that comes along with helping deter people from coming across. And that I, I think that that is a big component. Now, without a doubt, there's there's the touchy feely types that uh, you know don't even want it to be a slap on the wrist. They just want to knock the walls down and, and open our arms and invite them in except into their house which i I find to be uh, hypocritical as fuck but to me the the sentencing component i think is is another mechanism with which we as a nation can help deter uh people from wanting to come here in the first place which is is being you know more uh particular and and frankly more uh, staunch in our sentencing requirements um or or punishments rather uh, what is your take on kind of, you know, do you think that's a, a mechanism that would work? Do you think what's working now is is doing the opposite? What What is your take on the sentencing and, and uh, how that plays a role? Yeah, I mean, we know that sentencing works. Now, what they are for what country they're coming from, you know, I really couldn't tell you right now because I don't specialize in that. But, you know, you've got to have a deterrent. And, you know, one thing about it, we clearly know what we're doing is not working. Yeah. You know? Do you we think that the, the sentencing should be um, more severe than it is now? I do. I do. We we don't have really a deterrent right now. I mean, if you really think about it, anyone come, you're going to make it. That's what we've told the world. Yeah. And so we know that deterrence works. <clears throat> now, you know, what right looks like in that world, you know, it's not really my specialty. But. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on uh, where you would start? Yeah, anytime you cross and you're apprehended. Yeah, I mean, is that a six-month? Is that a three-month, you know? Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the origin of the country with where you come from. Because yeah. also, what's the least amount of a burden on the on the U.S. taxpayer, I think, is also a real yeah. real part of that process, too. Yeah. You know, the one of the things that I, I applaud uh, the president for in terms of dealing with Mexico, and I think it's, I mean, I hate to use the term brilliant, I think it's incredibly effective in saying, listen, if you guys have asylum seekers that are coming from Guatemala that come into Mexico or wherever, you know, by the, by the international letters of the law, as it were, in terms of asylum seekers, it's you seek asylum in the, in the first country that's, that does not uh, possess the, the situation or the circumstances with which you are, uh, you know, running or fleeing from. And so in this case, it would be Mexico. So to me, a simple mechanism of saying, okay, Mexico, if, if you're going to allow this caravan, because I remember what was it, six months ago or whenever the fuck it was, yeah, this caravan of 10,000 fucking people, there's news crews and they're following them and, and mapping their progress, just letting them do that. Say, hey, yeah. if you let them do that, you get nothing. You know, like you don't even have to, I mean, it can be, you know, bordering on tariffs or sanctions or, or just economic penalties that that would be severe enough to where they would absolutely do whatever you ask them to i mean you could in in effect from an asylum standpoint i think you could curb that almost immediately which it's it seems like that's helping i don't know if it's uh, you know the the data isn't in yet it's too new of a a tactic to see you know what kind of asylum numbers and, and what impact it has but to me, making it very black and white of just saying, if you, you know, everybody that's coming from your country, that's your fucking bust. Yeah. You know, that means you're not doing your job. And for every motherfucker that comes across from your country, we're going to penalize you for it. 
they're going to take a much different fucking stance at that point if their politicians and their government now aren't getting aid, aren't getting weapons, aren't getting training, aren't, you know, we're not trading with them, all of these different things. Yeah. What's your take on using that as a primary uh, Look, I mean, look at what Trump just did. We know it now works. Hell, he held them accountable. And can you, th- I can tell you in my history on the board, I can't think of a time that a president held any uh, Mexican president, former uh, accountable yeah. for what was happening. And he, when he finally put down that there were going to be terrorists, they started moving National Guard to our northern border, and they started moving National Guard to their southern border. Yeah. That hadn't happened previously. And that was a direct result of the president. And uh, immediately, I will tell you, as someone that's been on that border, and I said this on national news the other, li- the other night, and that was that for the first time I saw boats on the water. I've never seen that before yeah. from the Mexican government. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. Now, I've seen Blackhawks <clears throat> that we've given them. You know, I've seen uh, armored vehicles on the other side. We're seeing more of that. Uh, so, for, But for the first time, i actually seen them on the water. So it is working. The first stats came in. You know, the last month were 144, and then this month they came down by, what, 20% or something. So we're seeing some of that now. With that being said, where I'm concerned is what's the long game. Yeah. How long are they going to stay there? Because usually they come in and they go, and they don't do joint long-term operations. They'll do these quick sweeps. That yeah. doesn't do anything. Yeah. Cartels or, have learned to adjust to that very quickly. Yeah. What are some challenges in terms of uh, two things that I'm, I'm curious and that I have written down to, to get your experience on is corrupt U.S. officials, whether it's Border Patrol, whether it's law enforcement. Is, is that a significant problem? Yeah, it is. Um, we've had several sheriffs, not just deputies, but people who you know run large organizations down along the border, along with uh, former police chiefs. Uh, who've been indicted for corruption, working directly with the cartels. And while I can't go into how the cartels corrupt them, what I can tell you is the same methodology by what they use in Mexico, they use here domestically. And it operates in a form of bribery. It operates in a form of catching them doing things that are illegal. But I can't go into the details just for sure. for investigative. Purposes. But it is it is it is happening. It is real, and I can I can tell you this that there are designated people who are sent across to do that exact job. And it's the same thing they do in Mexico. They've mastered it there. And the reason it's an important topic is because the thing that separates cartels from gangs, I hear some professors sometimes say that gangs and cartels are the same, they're not. The reason they're not is not only because of the tradecraft and the skill set and what they do, but they control territory. That means the police chief, the police department, the local mayor, others. And those that are not, you know pretty quickly because they're killed. And you've seen some of the brutal killings of these police chiefs and people who have stood up. And, you know, that's one of the things that bothers me. I spent years, you know, monitoring the daily tripwires, and you don't see near the number of people fighting back anymore. That that really concerns me yeah. in Mexico. I mean, to me, I can I can see where that would be a tough spot. You know, to at be that in. local level. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. you're a... A police chief or a sheriff or a mayor of a, of a smaller border town oh, yeah. and you know a group of masked fucking dude shows up and says hey play ball or you're gonna be hanging from that fucking bridge that's a shitty spot to be in or a convoy of 40 vehicles with about 80 to 100 halcones who yeah. jump out of vehicles and if you get time tonight look it up it's incredible i yeah. mean imagine these guys rolling into your little town where you may have you know five Six to deputies. ten that's exactly yeah. you know with pistols 
And here these guys come in with fully automatic rifles, armored vehicles, and 50 cows. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, yeah, you're not you get why what's happening. Yeah, yeah. You're not combating that. What are some of the, the challenges that you see in terms of the, is one of the things that I know I'm always fascinated by for, for what you can share is, is some of the kind of the trickery or the, the ingenuity that exists with smuggling operations, whether it's drugs, people, uh, weapons, whatever, you know, whether it's tunnels or, you know, like you see some of the pictures of, of different busts of like fake watermelons that have fucking, you know, kilos yeah, of cocaine yeah. in them and shit. Can you share anything that comes to the top of your head of, of just some of the challenges that uh, that some of the resources that they have that uh, that our guys are facing with, with dealing with them? Yeah, I'm smiling because uh, I've seen some good ones, man. Um, the be- the best one to me is the cloned vehicles. And I, I tell your audience, if you get bored tonight, go on YouTube and type in cloned cartel vehicles. And you're going to see buses. Um, I can tell you a bus when I was in Laredo, we seized over 5,000 pounds and it was a, a, f- a fake school bus that they had completely redone. They had little fake heads in the windows. <laughs> no shit. I mean, it was, it, the damn thing was incredible. Um, they use a lot of oil field vehicles. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a border patrol vehicle. I mean, full on where the guy is wearing the shirt and everything. Yeah. Uh, incredible. And so for me, that, tr- think of what, think of that though, think of what it takes to buy a vehicle, right? Yeah. The logistics, right? You got to yeah. buy a vehicle. You got to get someone to stripe it, yeah. right? Then you got to get someone to make you a, a shirt or get you a shirt, get yeah. you the patches. The I mean, there's a there, lot right? that goes into this, right? Yeah. So um, those to me are the pretty much the best. But, you know, in the old days, it was pretty simple, you know? Right? You know, I mean, I, I don't want to give away too much here, but, you know, you had a rental car with a individual, one, one guy. You asked him where he's going. I don't know. I'm just going here. I'm going to drop off this car. Pretty easy. Yeah. Today, you can't, uh, you would never yeah. see that. But, and, and I mean, obviously, you don't know what you don't know in terms of what gets through, but I mean, a, a conservative estimate is, you know, 20% is, is what's being caught, right? Yeah. Well, so here's what the bosses will tell us when we debrief them. And um, they'll say that 10%. Is what is just the cost of doing business. Yeah. So they're they're pretty much what they're telling us is that we capture about ten percent of what they're actually sending. Yeah. Christ, that's uh, that's incredible. Um, it, let me tell you, it is incredible. I mean, the amount of dope that you'll see along the southwest border. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the feds don't even take most loads like of marijuana unless it's five hundred plus pounds. Yeah. You bring up a, a lot of compelling points and uh, you know sides to the story that I think are are largely muted. Uh, in our society that are that are just not not being told for a number of reasons um you know i think we've we've covered you know what your take is and as it relates to you know big picture how do we solve or what is the solution which is you know first you've got to secure the border you know i mean to me and the analogy i love is if you've got a toilet that's uh that's overflowing you know, what we're doing is trying to mop that up as it's overflowing. Like until you stop the the spilling water out of the toilet, you're wasting yeah. your fucking time trying to mop anything up. Hold the line, dedicate way more resources in conjunction with um, labeling, classifying these DTOs as foreign terrorist organizations to open up the toolbox. What I'm curious for, for the listener, you know, because I'm going to tell you right now, if I can... Al Sharpton isn't listening to this podcast, you know, neither is the border patrol director. Like it's, it's, you know, the, the sled dogs of the country are, are, you know, the people that make America, America are the ones listening to this. And I, I appreciate the support by the way, for all you civilian assholes that are listening. 
what can we as, we, you know, we, we know what we can do as a nation and, and frankly, even as, as the border states, you know, what they need to do. What can individuals do, uh, you know, for those people listening? Is there anything they can do? Yeah, there is. And I, I think that, you know, there are some congressmen out there that are really fighting like hell on this. Uh, congressman Chip Roy and Congressman Green. Uh, Green from Tennessee, they both, uh, I was able to sit down with Chip Roy and he backed a bill to try to get them designated, uh, the cartels designated as terrorist organizations, reach out to those guys, tell them you support them, you support this effort. Um, they also reached out to the State Department to try to get the State Department, because really you don't need a bill, you just need it, de the designation done. But the bill, along with the letter, was trying to add some political pressure to try to get that, you know, yeah. over overdone. But the folks, to answer your question, let them know that you support them. Let CBP, let me tell you, I've been around those men and women a long time. They're great people, man. Yeah. They, they're operating in a hell of an environment. You know, everything on the southwest border, it's got a damn stinger. It bites. That's, you mm -hmm. know, they, some bitches got fangs. I mean, <laughs> something's getting you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and they operate in 100-plus degree weather this time of year every day. And they're down there working their asses off for us. And I've never seen morale this low. Yeah. I mean, Mike, it's it, – I mean, <coughs> imagine if the teams went through what you guys well, – yeah. what the country's just seen. Yeah, I, I can know. tell you, you know, the the, se the second half of the Obama administration, there, there were record low numbers of morale in, this, in, the, in the special operations. And, and frankly, for the military, I mean, it was it was a rough time. No, no two ways about it. Um, you know, so I, I, I certainly can appreciate and understand the, the value of, uh, of both morale and support, uh, when it comes to, to folks that are putting their life on the line for whatever it is that our nation has them doing. I, uh, I know a number of border patrol guys, primarily canine guys, but a, a couple that, uh, that are more, you know, administrative or, or just in, in different areas. But, um, you know, for me, like on a, on a personal level, you know, I, I have mixed feelings. I play the devil's advocate role because they're, you know, one, because I know that that's a legitimate question that at least half the country is, is going to have. Uh, but but also, you know, from a drug standpoint, I am not not into into recreational drugs. I, I never have been. Um, I have mixed feelings on whether or not, you know, they should be legal or not. I, I do see a, a problem with them. And, and um, you know, by having just the floodgates open, you know, for sure there's, there's a, a trade-off. Um, you know, I am kind of a big fan of Darwin, you know, fig figuring out who should be here and, and who not, and just kind of, you know, with, with great freedom comes great responsibility. And, you know, if people are, are willing to ruin their lives, then let them, I, I get that there's a flip side to that, that, uh, that's detrimental and, and there isn't really a right answer. Uh, how worried are you, um, in what you do for a living, even being retired now of, of becoming too squeaky of a wheel, um, I mean, is that something that, that is uh, a, a significant uh, threat? Or from the U.S. side or from the Mexico or from side? from the Mexican <laughs> side. I, you know, I, I can't imagine. Uh, you know, the there's a lot, of, a lot of guys out there talking about uh, what I'm talking about. Derek Maltz is another one, a retired DEA special operations uh, special agent in charge. Uh, he's kind of handling the northern side. I'm handling the southern side. And I'll tell you that um, as long as you don't go at the cartels naming names and doing things like that, I think for the most part— Knock on wood, the most part, you're yeah. all right, you know. I, but I don't care anymore. Yeah. I'll be quite frank with you. I, I, I spent a lot of time down there during my career. I moved nine times for this state and for this country yeah. um, during my career. And what I've seen is one thing that I just can't tell you that I keep taking away from is that the American people are being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. They're being taken advantage of by the rest of the goddamn world. 
and they're being taken advantage of because our government agencies, and I, look, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for these men and women in these other agencies. It's not them. It's the leadership of these organizations who aren't adjusting to the threats. Yeah. And I don't, what, I, what bothers me the most, Mike, is that what I'm, I'm retired, right? Yeah. I, every day I'm monitoring these things, but I'm the only one screaming about the, what's happening at the border and how it's going to affect the folks. And that bothers me. And yeah. you know what? Um, it's a great country and you, know, you got to be willing to sacrifice for it. Yeah. Amen. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to, uh, bring to light or anything that we haven't talked about that, uh, that warrants, uh, getting out there? Yeah, I think one last thing, and that is that, um, I, you know, we talked about data earlier and you and I both agree that data is extremely important for whatever you do, right? Especially if we're running and looking at crime in the 21st century for this country. And for those that say, you know, Jason, I hear you, you, you know, that sound, that shit sounds good. How do we know it's going to work? How do we know that if we designate the cartels as terrorists, we go to a national ComStat model and we collaborate that that's going to fix this? One of the things that I would just tell the folks out there is look at the New York City Police Department. A lot of what I've talked about, they are doing. They created the, the, the New York City ComStat model in the early 90s. After 9-11, because of their frustration with the investigative model and how slow the FBI moved, they moved their intelligence officers all over the world, right? There's not an event that happens anywhere in the world they're not going to have people on the ground in the first, one, first hour feeding back to leadership what needs to be done. Now, how does that play out? You know, you and I can remember when we called New York the dirty apple, right? Mm -hmm. Because there was 2,200 plus murders a year in that city. Do you know what they are today? Mm -hmm. Today, they're less than 350 sustained oh, sure. in that city. So we know that using data, just as the military does, overlaid with intelligence, driving law enforcement operations, telling officers why you're sitting there and going with a model of prevention versus respond and clean up the mess. When we're fighting transnational and 21st century crimes, we know that shit works. Yeah. And if we can get the, the, the executive leadership of law enforcement agencies to go to this and do this model, then the states and all the other agencies are gonna mold over time towards these new threats. And we're going to start lowering crime at unprecedented levels. Is there a an individual or a department that that could make that happen? Like if somebody Federal Bureau of Investigation, they're in charge of the UCR and the National uh, Incident uh, NIBRS National Incident Based Reporting System. Uh, they need to create a new model. So if if somebody wanted to help be a squeaky wheel, they would write who or who? Uh, uh, Director Ray. Christopher Ray, he's the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and also uh, the, the administrator of DEA telling him specifically that we need to designate the cartels as terrorists because, yeah. because of his involvement in Mexico with his organization, he has a lot of pull there yeah. and, and a lot of say-so. Yeah. Right. So please do that. I'm glad you brought that up. That's another one I wanted to bring up yeah. the folks could do to help. Well, like I said, very compelling points. Really, uh, really interesting conversation and a lot of things that you know, I had uh, no idea to the, the level uh, with which they were they were happening and being conducted and things of that nature. What uh, what are you up to now? Where can people find you in terms of if they want you to come speak or uh, help them with uh, you know their department or, or what have you? What uh, what services do you offer now, and where and where can people enlist those? 
Yeah, sure. You can find me at jasonjones.com. J-A-E-S-O-N. A little different. You got that fancy spelling. Yeah, I like to say my mom was a sunflower child back in the 60s, man, you know. but uh, <laughs> Maybe she was uh, hooked up with the cartel. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, you, you can find me there. But what I do now, this is it. I am trying to get the word out to the American people. And so uh, also I post every day. Uh, and I put into context what the car, what you know, what is flashed about the cartels, what it really means to the American yeah. people, and then so if you want to follow me on that, you can do that. But mm-hmm. my main thing is, is I want to get the word out to the folks, yeah. and and you know, let's get some solutions. And even if what I'm saying we don't go with, that's fine. But we need to change what we're doing as a country, and we need to start protecting the American people. Are you on uh, social media and all that? Oh yeah. What yeah. Uh, What are your handles on that? Uh, you just type in my name, it'll pop up. Okay. Um, but it, I'm ho- I host Tripwires and Triggers. Okay. That's the name of it. All right. So Tripwires and Triggers. There yeah. you have it. Um, well, again, I, I can't thank you enough for coming. It's been a, a riveting conversation for sure. One that I hope uh, our listeners both enjoy, appreciate, uh, and as well as uh, take some some good info away from that uh, that they can use moving forward. A big shout out again to our sponsor, Origin Labs. Um, Thanks for uh, for everything you guys do for the Mic Drop podcast, uh, makers of Jocko's stuff, and uh, all of their products as well, which uh, if you go to their website, you can see everything that they do and uh, go support those guys because they support us. You can also support the Mic Drop podcast um, if you just uh, go on MikeRitland.com. Uh, you, can, you can support the podcast through there. Uh, and if you own a dog, if you've thought of a dog, if you've petted a dog, if you've seen a dog, Go to teamdog.pet, sign up, uh, get all of the products that, uh, that I have for sale in relation to dogs and dog training uh, on that site, as well as the, uh, the actual training videos, if not choke yourself. And uh, again, thank you, Jason Jones, for uh, coming in and uh, sharing your story. I really appreciate everything. Hey, great meeting yeah, you, man. Thank thanks you for, for having me. Yeah, appreciate thanks, you. Thanks for your service to the, to the nation, to the state of Texas. Thank and, you. Uh, and for well. coming. Thank you for the listener. Uh, without your support, we would not be able to bring this content to you. I appreciate you, as always. And until next time, this is Mike Trout. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.